Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. It is Saturday, September 26th. We are putting this up shortly after Real Madrid beat Real Betis 3-2 at the Benito Villamarín. And by shortly, I really mean like a couple hours at least because we actually discussed that game for an hour and a half. That was part one alone. So myself, Matt Wiltsy, Omarvin, we do what we do. We just talk and we break down every single sequence that we possibly can. We talk about the tactics, the starting lineup. Uh, we talk about what could have gone differently. We talk about individual performances, takeaways, a bunch of things, right? This is just what we do. So that's an hour and a half, part one alone. And then part two, it's Las Blancas, Omarvin, Grant Little, and Gabe Lestra. They continued the season preview for Real Madrid Femenino. This week they talk about the team's win over Madrid CFF in a preseason friendly behind closed doors, among other things. And then part three, Castilla Corner, the infamous trio of Sam, Chris, and Ruben. They're back. So really fun, long podcast. No Journalism Corner this week. There'll be plenty of time for Journalism Corner stuff in the future. There is no shortage of content for that. And that's always fun to do. But we're going to bring that forward because today is a a banger and a very, very long podcast. Um, As a reminder, in case you missed me say this last week, very important. There is a deal right now for patreon.com slash managing Madrid if you want to sign up. If you sign up before October for an annual membership, you get two months for free. If you sign up after October, you can still get a deal for an annual membership, but it's only one month free. And then in November, I'm not sure what the deal will look like, but it will be nothing as enticing as that. Um, but if you're a patron and you want to upgrade to an annual membership, you will save money. You just have to do it before October hits. And if you are not a patron and you've been waiting for the right time to sign up, there is no better time than now. The season is starting. We have a game on Wednesday that the post-game show for that will only be on patreon.com slash managing madrid any midweek game whether it's copa la liga or champions league will only be on patreon.com slash managing madrid for the post-game show so here's what you get if you sign up first of all you get access to every single episode we've ever done on patreon.com slash managing madrid some of them are timeless podcasts like they're not time sensitive you can actually go back and listen to them at any time and they'll be good you'll get access to um, I don't know, hundreds? You'll get access to almost 400 episodes, a backlog of episodes that you can just go back and listen to at your own leisure. You'll also get access to our weekly loan tracker on Tuesdays, and then you'll also get a podcast on Thursdays. So you'll at least get two additional podcasts, but probably three on a lot of weeks this season of just additional content. The minimum pledge is $3. Again, if you sign up for an annual membership by now, it's $30 for the entire year. So you get two months for free. I'm not sure what else you can get for $3 that gets you that return on investment. It's pretty spectacular. Um, just And it's not even tuning my own horn. It's, uh, it's just everybody on, on staff right now is incredible. The crew is unbelievable, both written content and the podcast content. There are so many amazing contributors and so much good analysis of the team, the women's team, Castilla team, uh, and, and so forth, that it's just well worth the money spent. I also wanted to give you a housekeeping for this Tuesday's Loan Tracker. Matt and I can't coordinate to actually meet on Tuesday, so there's no live Zoom call this Tuesday. We're actually going to still do a loan tracker, but it will go up on the RSS feed just as the audio. It won't be live. Uh, And then we'll be back Wednesday and Thursday. So three days in a row, we'll be back this week over on patreon.com slash Madrid. And as always, keep it locked on the website. Enjoy these three segments today. And without further ado, here is part one. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog 
and wonderful lad to do a great job there and worth reading about that man there so we bet the man needs to rest and the numbers will be wide All right, welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast. We are here to break down Real Madrid's 3-2 win over Real Betis. I am here with Matt Wiltsey. I'm here with Om Arvind. And as always, our job in this post-game analysis is not to overreact to anything two games in, but also not to underreact anything, but just to analyze things for what they are and to call it like it is. And join me to do this, our Matt and Om. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Hey, Kian. Hey, uh, doing well. I mean, yeah, we kind of had a little bit of everything in this game. We had some good individual performances. We had some uh, VAR controversy, which is nothing new to Madrid. And then we had uh, a few tactical things, uh, another new lineup from Zidane. So plenty, plenty, as always, for us to talk about. You know what's interesting about this game? There's Actually, there are a lot of interesting things. I think there are a lot of interesting tactical wrinkles. I think there's a lot of discussion to be had about certain player performances and whatnot. Um, I think maybe most surprising thing is this whole week, there wasn't much to talk about, which gave all the press, including us, more time to talk about the whole Jovic thing. Like, why didn't he play? You know, we, we, we started Sunday night after the Real Sociedad game on this podcast we talked about, you know, Zidane's explanation of Z- of Jovic not coming on the pitch. So his explanation was he didn't want to take Benzema off, so he wanted to keep the formation as it was with the wingers, and he didn't feel like taking Benzema off was a good idea in that situation, which means only one striker can play in that scheme, and that was Benzema. And this entire week, we were kind of dissecting that, and Lucas and I talked about it extensively on the Thursday pod. How can they play together? How will, How can they coexist? Um, the press conferences on Friday, all the questions were like, can these two play together? And Zidane was saying, yeah, of course they can play together, blah, blah, blah. And then this game rolls around and he starts two together. Now, Zidane doesn't strike me as somebody um, who gives into public opinion. He ignores that stuff. He's very good at ignoring the noise. He does his own thing. And I don't think this was him giving in by any means. I think this was his own mind coming up with this solution. And I think if if no press pressured him to do anything or, or explain that, he still would have played this formation. I think he is his own man. <laughs> Just get that out of the way. But I did think it was a surprise nonetheless. And it was very interesting to see how this dynamic worked. When I saw the lineup, I liked it. I refrained from commenting on it because I still wanted to see it. I waited until halftime to get my thoughts out about what, what, what I was seeing on the pitch. But when I saw the lineup, I liked it. I don't think this is Real Madrid's full-strength lineup when everybody is healthy, everyone is clicking, including Hazard, Asensio, Isco. When everyone is there, I don't think this is the starting lineup. But I liked it with given who was available today. I thought this was a great lineup. So I'm curious before even... Talking about what actually happened on the pitch, when you saw the lineup, Om, what were your thoughts? I liked it. Um, if we're, My issue offensively with the diamond in the past has been, obviously, surrounding Isco's role. 
is he going to do the thing where he just plays as a deep central midfielder or is he going to play as a number 10 and stay between the lines? And it's always been iffy with him and you never know which version of Isco you're going to get. And with Odegaard, given how he's played at Real Sociedad, given how he played last game in terms of his positioning, I feel a lot more confident about what I'm going to get in terms of positioning. And, and that 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 position between the lines, to me, completely changes the offensive dynamic of the diamond. It actually gives you what the diamond is intended to do, which is overloads in midfield, good central ball progression. And, you know, we're, we're also getting to see Jovic play. And with all of, like, the questions about whether he's going to be loaned out or not, with all the troubles he had over lockdown and what he was doing with COVID and how, how he played last season and the few chances he got, it was good to see some faith from Zidane saying, well, I'm I'm still going to give him a chance and we get to see Benz and Jovic play together. So, like, on the face of it, all of it kind of made sense to me. Um, I always, I prefer Valverde, especially when we're playing a diamond because of the box-to-box energy he brings and just his overall engine. And so going into it, I was... I was pleasantly surprised, and I was like, "All right, it, you know, let's let's give it a shot. Let's see how how it turns out." And I have a lot of criticisms of what happened this game, but going into it, I was fairly pleased with the lineup that Zidane chose, and it told me that one, starting Odegaard two games in a row, he's trying to figure out how to make Odegaard like a key piece in this team, and then two, he's still trying things, or he was still looking for solutions about how we can make our offense better. And that was the perception I had basically coming into the game when I saw the lineup. The Odegaard, entire Odegaard experience to me has been encouraging so far. Now, two games in, who? I mean, listen, I'm going to, even like five games into this season, I'm going to be very careful about what we, what we really kind of analyze here and what we take with us as like future learning. Um, and in my columns, I'm very conscious of that. And I'm not, I'm not going to write too much as the season starts here for that reason. Um, after the first game, Zidane said, look, look, this was a one-off. This was not going to be the way we play all the time. Obviously, Casemiro and Fede Valverde, two pillars of last season, were not in the lineup, the starting lineup that is last, last game. And in this game, I don't think this is something we're going to see on a consistent basis. But nonetheless... I think we're very interested to see how something like this would look with Benzema and Jovic together. And also a diamond behind them, which was also interesting because I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to get get Jovic involved here. Um, But as Yadan said, again, reiterated after today's game that, you know, he's going to try multiple things. This is a team that is very variable schematically. It's versatile. Now, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. It's good because it keeps the opponent second-guessing. It, it, it allows the team to shape-shift not only from game to game, but within the game itself. It also can be a bit detrimental in the sense that it ignores rhythm and continuity and getting people um, into some kind of rhythm, which is ex- essentially what happened to Luka Jovic last season. And this is why I'm not going to overreact to him not scoring today. And I actually thought he did some good things, which we'll get to. But... Um, the the lineup itself today, um, you know, it, I had similar concerns to you, Om. Now, I thought Odegaard was actually pretty good um, in this first half before he got taken off for Isco at halftime. I think what he does really well is he position, positions positions himself between the lines as he did last game. Matt, you and I have talked about like this trade of his all of last season. And you look at him in this game, the difference between him and Isco to me in the diamond and not necessarily Isco in this game, but Isco in the diamond, that experience as, as a whole. 
Isco roams a lot more. I think Odegaard's positioning in the diamond is much more rigid than what Isco does. And Isco is the type of person who will float. He will just kind of, he's a magnet towards the ball. Just goes and finds where the ball is and pops up as an outlet, even if it's five yards away. Odegaard channels himself kind of in that zone 14, right behind the midfield and in front of the defense. And is always providing himself as an outlet in a dangerous position there. Um, that's what he did well. But what him and Isco did have in common and what, I think anyone will have a common in Zidane's diamond is that defensively it is a bit unpredictable. You have no idea where that person is. And for that reason, transition defense can be a little bit problematic. We saw that also on William Carvalho's goal. That was Odegaard's man. He was a bit late to pick that up. By the time he reacted, he reacted too, too, too slowly. And probably nine times out of ten, that doesn't go in. We don't talk about it. But it went in and Courtois let it through. So we are talking about it. Um, so th- that's kind of the way I saw it. And also positionally, Isco goes to the left more. Odegaard was more central in, in this game. So Matt, what do you think? Do you think that that assessment of the diamond is fair? And if, and, but but what, how did you see it? I'm curious. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree with your assessment. I think we kind of, we know it's give and take with the diamond. That transition defending is always going to be a little bit of a mess, but we're looking on, on the opposite end to, be able to create a number of different opportunities, create goal-scoring chances, which we did tonight. Um, I think focusing on Odegaard's performance, I I thought, like you, Kian, I thought he took up some really good positions. And it was nice with the Benzema-Jovic pairing, or even that front three, it was nice that when Benzema dropped in to kind of build up play, um, both Jovic and Odegaard would run off of him centrally and so we we still had a presence in that final third, even when Benzema came deep to kind of build out play and had a man on his back. And that that also allowed Odegaard from having to play with his back to goal, which I think everyone prefers Odegaard facing the net. So those were some positives from it, but just I felt like I wanted to see Odegaard um, take on a little bit more of a protagonist role and kind of demand the ball. I just feel like we're still it's obviously so early days so you can't you can't criticize him too much he's getting getting to know his new teammates but I just wanted to see a little bit more from him there was no key passes no completed dribbles uh in this match and those those are kind of two of his bread and br- bread and butter so that from that standpoint is a little disappointing and obviously on the goal um it was clear that that was his marker to track and I wonder if he was uh, taken out at halftime just as kind of a punishment for that for that mistake but it was it was everybody though if you look at our transition defending some of just the defensive sequences um when <laughs> when real Bertis would get through nobody would it was just a fu- it's a fundamental defensive principle that if somebody if somebody's stepping out like you track your man and then you converge and like there were so many times where Sergio Ramos would step out and then Varane and Mendy wouldn't converge. There would be a hole in behind them, and Betis would just play right through there. And so tracking your men and converging, I mean, I can't reiterate that enough. I mean, we did that so well last year, and then today all of a sudden it was forgotten. So, it, again, this is it's almost like preseason. We're building up. We're, we're remembering those kind of fundamentals, and I think the team just a little loose today. So – We'll obviously touch on the defensive points because that I think that's where my larger criticism is. I think that's where your guys' larger criticisms criticisms will be, and it's worth kind of digging into individual mistakes, schematic mistakes. But since we're on the topic of Odegaard, 
I agree with you, what you guys have said about him, both in terms of what he was doing on the ball and his failure to track Carvalho uh, on, on the goal that Real Betis scored. In terms of Odegaard being more protagonist, getting more involved, I think... I think you could say some of that could be on him in terms of demanding the ball. Like I definitely, and again, like I, I always hesitant to do this because it's not very scientific, but in terms of body language, in terms of how much Odegaard is yelling at his teammates to give him the ball, like the first two games to me, there's a clear distinction between Real Sociedad and Real Madrid at like the moment in terms of Real Sociedad, like Odegaard is just always telling people to give him the ball rest at Real Madrid. And possibly because like, it's clear that, He's playing with much better players, players with great status, players who are not going to feel obligated to give him the ball at all points. That I just don't feel like Odegaard is demanding it at points. Like he'll get into the good like passing situation, a passing game will open up, and the most he'll do is just kind of uh, show his hands, like to be like I'm here. And I I don't see him vocalizing, so that can be part of an issue. But I think the larger thing here is just the chemistry has not been built, and beyond the chemistry. Having Odegaard play in this position, trying to make use of Odegaard's characteristics requires a mentality change in terms of how Real Madrid are used to playing. So the way I'd phrase it is we lack a vertical mentality throughout the entire team. And I think changing it is going to take a while. It's going to take take some work because there were so many passing lanes to Odegaard between the lines that we just missed. And it wasn't just a case of not seeing it. There are moments where Kroos, Valverde, Casemiro, you could see them look up and look at Casemiro. Uh, sorry, not Casemiro. So they, they saw Odegaard between the lines and they just hesitate and they play sideways or they play backwards. And I get that because Sidon's possession game for the longest time now has been emphasized on security and moving into the final third in, in a bit of a slower manner in a way that that emphasizes ball retention over anything else. And to play those vertical passes, which we, someone like Cruz obviously has the capability to do, but to do it constantly, right? Like at a much at a much greater volume than we're used to requires just doing it decisively and almost kind of a second nature. So if you look at how Real Sociedad were playing with Guevara and Marino, those players are not better than the players we have. But their mindset was totally different. They saw an opening, they saw Odegaard, and they fired a pass into that slim opening without hesitation, and bang. Real Sociedad are away in semi-transition, and Odegaard's on the ball making things happen, which we just never really saw in the first half because Odegaard was not really getting the ball in those types of situations. And so it, it's going to take some work. Like it, and, and this really is like changing the way our players' brains have been wired these last three, four seasons or so to move away from really being about minimizing risk at all costs in the build-up phase and going, especially when the vertical lanes are clearly open, just zipping it into Odegaard and, and, and having things happen from there. And that, that to me, is like something you can't ignore when talking, whenever, when talking about Odegaard's performance and how he's fitting into the team right now. And to me at the moment, which again, unsurprising, this is not so much a criticism as an observation that to me, there's right now a disconnect between the way Odegaard likes to position himself and our ability to kind of find him in those spaces and take advantage of that positioning. It, it is interesting to see, you know, different players in the same scheme and kind of how they function differently and kind of try to balance, you know, Zidane's 
design in in and the instructions he gives those players in those roles uh, and also just to also look at and maybe even appreciate how different they are like subtly different you know with Odegaard and Isco they can play, both play the diamond one cuts in from the left what one cuts in from the right one is more rigid one is more fluid it'll be interesting to see how the team itself also balances that dynamic of playing with a different style of player in that role as the season goes on um I I, I do lean on to more towards if you can even call it a struggle, I think it, it it's a it's a it's a subtle struggle that is I'm not ready to call it necessarily a full bone struggle yet because we're two games in. But if if there's an issue with his body language or his or the chemistry with his teammates, I lean more towards just like this is just a familiarity thing until kind of mm-hmm. the team gets it down, and I think you can kind of see it the way like you know. Odegaard is talking to his team before the game, trying to still figure out, trying to still calculate his surroundings. Whereas Isco has been here for years, so naturally he's going to pick up the ball a little bit faster. Um, and for what mm-hmm. it's worth, you know, it, I may have simplified a little bit when I said, well, the difference between Isco and Odegaard is this. It also is that Isco, Isco gave the team a little bit more control in the second half because he was more involved in the ball. And I think part of that is, well, part of that, well, just because Betis also were playing with 10 men for, for a chunk of that second half, but also because, um, or not because, but I, I, I did think that was an issue when I, when I was watching the first half, right? So part of the reason I said I wanted to wait to see what this lineup would actually show us before commenting on it as much as I liked the lineup was like, I think it was, it was used in, in a way that wasn't, it wasn't using the strengths of the, of the players on the field. So what I mean by that is like if you're playing a diamond with again Kroos and then Modric who came in for him at the end of the half, Casemiro, Fede, Odegaard, and you have you have you know Ramos and Varane as your, as your center backs. You have Benzema floating around. You should be able to hold on to the ball. And if you're not holding on to the ball in the diamond, it's a little bit. I wouldn't say it defeats the purpose, but they were playing a very high line. They weren't pressing very high. So they were kind of in limbo, and Real Madrid sometimes goes in this mode where they're caught in between two worlds, and they're neither pressing nor zipping up vertically defensively. And their transition defense suffers. They were also give, give they were also giveaways that they just couldn't recover from. So I think, yeah, both of the goals they conceded were actually stemming. They stemmed from giveaways, right? So on, or sorry, the second one was the the first one was the Mandy towering over Casemiro for the header. The two one. That Betis, it was a it was a cross giveaway, um, where where Betis come the other way and order guards and track Carvalho, and then there was another sequence that almost was a goal. The only reason it wasn't was because Courtois pulled a save out of his ass. Was um, when Courtois saves the shot. Uh, I think it was Sanabria, right? I could be wrong on that. In the seventh mm-hmm. minute, that was, was a Car- it was Sanabria. Yeah, player. that was a Carvajal giveaway. Carvajal gave it away. Yeah. And then Mendy's yeah. not in position, which means Ramos was kind of spread thin, marking, and then he, and then um, Sanabria was left open. Courtois makes a miracle save. So there were moments like that that I think that the team wasn't in shape to recover from, and I think that hurt hurt the team. And um, again, if you're going to play the diamond, I think if you're not going to have control, you're going to play a high line. Plus, you're not pressing. That, that those are issues. Yeah, and to your point, I mean. Diamond's all about control, right? And we, in that, after we scored the goal, actually, we started to retreat a little bit. And uh, we gave, we allowed Betis to kind of get on the ball and come come into our half. And we just took on a, a deeper shape. And I think that's what, I mean, I mean, 
Fede Valverde said it after the match. So Don told him, like he he used the term, we changed, we we changed our mindset and we pushed back into their half. And I think you could see the team starting to just kind of trying to weather the storm rather than take the game themselves. And when you're playing in the diamond formation, um, that's difficult to do. And I think particularly the midfield four of Odegaard, Fede, uh, Cruz and Casemiro, Cruz while he was on. Um, they didn't. It didn't look like they were 100% sure of who they were supposed to mark, what space they were supposed to occupy uh, defensively. And I think that, that really caused problems. And that's why when we had midfielders running in behind or Fakir and Canales, both who caused us a ton of problems, especially Canales. He had four key passes in this match. Um, those two guys, they were causing us a ton of problems because they were taking up unique positions on the field and Cruz wasn't sure if he should mark him. Casemiro wasn't sure if he should take him. And I think that us retreating into the second half and not having a good uh, defensive shape really, really hurt us. So in terms of the point about control, it was 50-50 possession, actually, in the first half. And I will, Can I just, before, I you ju- it, before you go on, I would yeah, just say ahead. that I don't think either team had control. I think the 50-50 right. was like interesting to me when I saw it because in my mind, neither team had control from start to finish. And it was just bad defending from both, bad and a lot of space, and neither team um, had control. And 50-50, when I saw that number, it actually kind of made sense to me. But anyway, sorry to cut you off. It just reminded me. No, that, that makes sense. It's kind of what I was going to say. Um, I, I think the lack of control for Real Madrid's perspective I think you can point to certain things on the ball doing that. But as you guys were discussing with the defensive shape, I think the ability to dominate possession comes in an underrated way from your ability to win the ball back quickly, your ability to press and rack up essentially a higher volume of possessions for yourself and spend more time on the ball. And our defense was just all over the place. Like I... I can't really mince words. It was it was terrible. Um, it really reminded me of like those seventeen eighteen days with the diamond, where like we were just black magicking our way through certain games, where the diamond wasn't quite looking how it did in sixteen seventeen. And there's always some defensive variability with the diamond when we press out of it, just because what the number ten is doing when we're transitioning back to a mid block is has never been absolutely clear. But if you look at when we've done it better, it's generally going to a flat four four two, and when when Isco is doing it in like sixteen seventeen, and like there'll be moments here and there where it doesn't happen, where suddenly it's a four three one two defensive situation, and we we might like concede like a shot here and there, but it wasn't enough that like it completely blew up the entire system. As Matt was saying, just basically on every sequence to me when we were defending starting from a high block, our midfield four had no idea how we were supposed to shape up. And Odegaard's, and it, it stems from Odegaard's defensive positioning not being clear. And that's not me blaming Odegaard. Like, it's, I don't know, I mean, I guess it's Zidane. Like, for I, Zidane either not being clear or Odegaard not being clear on how to execute what Zidane was telling him. But Odegaard really had no idea what his defensive role was in this game. So... And the issue is, right, like, we set up as if we were going to press. It was a high block every time Real Betis were building from the back, but there was no pressing from that high high block. Like, okay, we went three versus three, staying in our diamond shape with Odegaard staying on Carvalho, who was dropping. Okay, so that's a decent shape to start off with. 
the front three weren't pressing aggressively. Um, the fullbacks weren't pressing aggressively in wide areas. So it was way too easy for Betis to move into the middle third. And then suddenly you're in a scramble situation, right? Because you're moving backwards and it's like, well, this four, uh, three, one, two situation, that's not great when you're moving deeper and deeper towards your own box. And so the question is, where does Odegaard move? And he didn't really move anywhere. He just kind of stayed in that position. And all of a sudden we lack horizontal compactness because our midfield line is so scrunched. Someone has to come over, which opens up space in the middle and then they can play through us. And in the 20th minute, that chance we conceded where which is us transitioning from that passive high block to mid block. Betis just played through our center, one twos through our center midfield line. Our 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 shape is confused as hell, and that's when Fekir gets on the uh, the left hand side and sends that shot just wide of the post, which I thought was kind of the most obvious example of how that midfield shape led to a conceded chance. And then also there was a moment to the end of the 32nd minute to the beginning of the 33rd, where this was just, I think, more than displaying like our confusion in defensive transition, just a general lack of organization we had was we had plenty of time to organize ourselves after Betis like attack the box, right? They recirculate the ball, they move back to the halfway line, and somehow we transform into this 6-2-2 shape with Casemiro and Valverde moving into the defensive line while Kroos and Odegaard stay up. At a certain point, when you're seeing such variability in your defensive shape in deeper situations, that's a telltale indication that players don't really know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. And so that was one issue. But to me, I think the easier fix to this was like, okay, if, and I understand, like, you can't press every game. These guys are human, you know. Okay, so if we're not going to press, then why situate yourself in a high block, right? If you, if you're not going to do it, then forget you know, going three versus three, just immediately transition to a flat four, four, two off the ball and sit in a mid high block and then defend from there. But we weren't doing that. So just, it was really weird for me to see that come up, especially after we'd been the best defensive unit in the league last season. And it, to me, it all stemmed from the fact that we just didn't know how we were transitioning out of our initial shape in the diamond with this huge confusion around what Odegaard was doing and then it didn't help that someone like Casemiro just did not have the greatest game on both sides of the ball. And so that just kind of added to all of it. And if it wasn't for Ramos and Varane in particular, who made a lot of like last ditch types of like interventions and stuff, I think it could have been worse for us. You mentioned the, the Fekir chance in the 20th minute too. I just want to point out that was also another giveaway. That one was a sloppy Ramos giveaway. And I that, that that's what started the, the Betis counter. Um, and I thought that Ramos's gambles in the first half didn't help um, the team. And I thought he started a little bit sloppy. Um, obviously, it, it kind of it kind of was triggered with the miss in the 15th minute where he somehow inexplicably misses that point-blank chance. Um, I know it's the defender we're talking about here, but it's also Sergio Ramos, so I, just, I think we all expected him to score that. Um, and then he had some sloppy giveaways. He also had a gamble. And he also let... I believe it was Fekir again, but he he let somebody in the half space behind him really easily, uncharacteristically. Um, but then he he kind of just in the second half he came came to life. He became one of the most important players. I thought um, his defending was good, like his last ditch tack, his last ditch um, defending, like you said, um, 
But also, he, he came over to the left on that one sequence and made that unbelievable cross to Benzema, who hit the bar. Um, and he also had some nice passes. He had one really nice pass to Jovic in the box, too. So he also just like came into his own, and obviously, the winning goal was his Panenka penalty. So um, what, a way to, what a way to end the game. So I, what, what else do you guys want to talk about in the first half specifically that, that caught your eye? Um, I think, I don't know, Om, do you have anything else you want to cover in the first half? Uh, well, I've written down every single chance, both halves, but I guess because I mentioned Casemiro, I think Casemiro recovered in the second half, but man, like his overall passing, especially in the first half, which is not great, 76.3% passing accuracy, he was beaten in a couple of defensive sequences, which was the more surprising thing because we know Casimir can sometimes have these games on the ball. And obviously the set-piece goal, he was just beaten in the air by Mandy. But the bigger thing was somehow, like, Betis, like, okay, Real Madrid attack, we're not fully set up. Uh, Real Betis' goalkeeper takes a quick goal kick, and it goes over the top of everyone. And... Casemiro is the last man, and he just completely misjudges the flight of the yeah. ball. And Sanabria gets a free one versus one, but he doesn't particularly control the ball well. So it's like a volley that goes over the bar. And Casemiro, and I, to be honest, I think Casemiro was a victim of our weak defensive organization in this game. But at the same time, judging him by his own excellent defensive standards, he's kind of the guy that just saves us in these types of situations. When everyone is lost, he's the one that plugs all the holes, plugs all the gaps, and he just didn't put in that kind of heroic performance today. Even though he did, he racked up a decent amount of like tackles and interceptions. There were also like big mistakes like coming along with that and missing lots of people and stuff. That was kind of uncharacteristic of the high standards that I'm sure Casemiro sets for himself and that I expect from him defensively, which makes him like arguably the best destroyer in the world. So. It, to me, and then obviously, like, as I was saying, like, the passing just was not great from Casemiro in this game. It was weird from people like Kroos as well. Like, Keon mentioned the giveaway for Betis' second goal, and I don't know when he picked up the hamstring injury exactly. I'm wondering whether he picked it up maybe pre-game, earlier in the game, that, like, led to some of these weird giveaways he had in the first half. He only had, like... I think 87% passing accuracy, which for Kroos is extremely pedestrian. Um, so, yeah, it was just a lot of weird individual performances in the first half to compound the fact that it wasn't a great, like, schematic performance. And there's, like, I guess I can go over the chances as well, like some of the great chances we created and stuff like that. But I, I don't know if you guys had kind of wanted to build off anything I said. Uh, yeah, I just want to touch on Casemiro because I had similar thoughts. I mean, I one of my notes was just in the first half was just Casemiro nightmare. I feel like he – and I don't know how much we can uh, place blame on this for the crunching tackle he had with Emerson where Emerson basically just stomped on his ankle. And so when – uh, that Modric sub- substitution was being prepared. I thought it was Casemiro who was going to be substituted out, and it seemed like that's what yeah. I was on the BN feed, and it seemed like that's what Ray and Phil thought as well. And then Cruz came off, and so I, I didn't even know Cruz had had an injury. Um, so 
Yeah, and then it just not it's uncharacteristic of Casemiro to be beaten so easily on that corner kick, and like you said, how he, how much he fumbled on that uh, quick goal kick that Joel Robles took. I mean, all of that it was just it was so uncharacteristic of him. And then even in that beginning part of the second half, I I, I think back to um, he's just kind of like hanging on to the ball. He was playing around with it uh, in our third of the pitch. Uh, over on the right flank, Carvajal's flank, and he just wanted like, Casemiro, what are you doing? Get rid of it. And I think he had a lot of those moments today. He just seemed a little bit slow, um, and it it almost – I don't know how much of it we could put blame on injury or if it was, he's just ramping up, trying to get in form, but it was not, not a good match for Casemiro. On that note, we're talking about passing and stuff and midfielders. I was disappointed with Mortar today too. I thought – Modric was a little bit uncharacteristic, mm-hmm. and he's you know, he's he's getting older. He's having more and more of these games as he gets older. He's had a few, he had a few of them last season. He had quite a few the year before, but but he also has some transcendent games as well, pe- peppered in between. He he had a few moments in this game after he came on for Cruz where it he just kind of gave it away inexplicably. And one of them he had to take a yellow card for because it was like right in front of our box. And then he just, he took the foul. I actually thought at, at first glance, I thought he just won it back brilliantly, but he wasn't even close to the ball. And, and then there was another one later <laughs> yeah, about like, about like six minutes later, he had another one too. Um, but I did, I, I thought someone who did have an awesome performance in midfield was Fede Valverde. I thought this was very much akin to kind of the old Fetty, and by old Fetty, I mean like, look, he's been around for like two, three years in in uh, in in the A team. We're not taking it way back, play back here, but before 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 the pandemic, he was one of the best players of the season. After the pandemic, he kind of cooled off a bit, but today he was awesome. He was covering ground, and he was especially in that right half when the scheme shifted a little bit and Odegaard left, and he kind of took that right flank to his own. Made some nice runs uh, on the overlap to Carvajal. Made the for for Real Madrid's second goal. It was his quick diagonal pass to Carvajal, which led to the Emerson own goal. So I thought I thought he was pretty good. Um, first half things, but also ties in. I think this is where we go from now. From here, we go to Luka Jovic. So I call me. Call me absolutely floored and aghast and, and just in shock about the complete dismissal from the fan base of Luka Jovic today. Like, just go on, and I don't do this often, but go to the Managing Madrid uh, immediate reaction comments. And, like, people are calling him a bust, and it's like, it's like there's just a lot of, of like, people, like, disbelieve in Jovic. Look, I, I've been saying this for a long time. I said it. As as uh, as recently as Thursday, this guy just doesn't play. You can't expect him to come good because this, a striker he needs rhythm and stuff. Like he, you you can't you can't just throw him in once in, once in a while and expect him to do something. And then when he doesn't, you can't hold him accountable for that. It's not fair, okay? Like give him a sample size at least. Give him a string of games, and if he doesn't do anything, then say it. Which by the way, he actually did stuff. But if you if you learn to kind of look at the game in a different way, you'll realize that. First of all, his presence, even though he didn't do anything on the stat sheet, his presence created two goals today uh, and, and possibly one round of the game because he also drew the red card. On the first goal, he, he is taking um, the attention from Mandy and Bartra. 
And and especially when Car- Carvalho, he was initially tracking Fede for before Fede popped up and scored. So he's doing that. On the second goal, um, he is making a run to the near post so that Benzema can make a run to the far post. Uh, and then on the, on the the third thing he did was obviously he um, he drew the red card. And to me, that's let's talk about the butterfly effect of that because if Emerson doesn't foul Jovic there and takes the red card and Jovic scores, that would have been a huge moment, I think, for his season if he... And how many? This has just been like his luck so far, right? Like, yeah, this just keeps happening. Last season, it's like, oh, he scores perfect. Oh, oh he's offside. Oh, he's, again, offside. And it's like that happened like what? How many times? Four times? I don't know. I'm just making that number up. But it happened enough for like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> that was unlucky. And then, and then today, it's like, okay, this is the moment where the floodgates open, the icebreaker right here. And then Emerson has to do that. So that she's had some bad luck. Let's be let's be honest. Let's let's cut him some slack here. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I was pretty confident that he was going to score that if he didn't if he didn't get fouled. I just felt once he was clean through, once he took that good first touch with his chest, I was like, oh, Jovic has got this. I just felt I just felt it, and I, I agree with you, Keon. I didn't think he was poor. I thought he what he did really well and what helped the team. You you kind of made the point there was he occupied the central defenders, so that allowed Benzema to take up um, some of the spaces that he likes to take up on the left flank deeper. And when he took when he took those spaces, there was still somebody keeping the defense honest. We weren't, we didn't just have this huge black hole with nobody. There's so many times that I, I screenshot a play of Real Madrid, and there's just absolutely no one occupying the back four. So Jovic keeps them honest because he's still that central target man up there. Um, and so that that's what I liked about his game. I thought there were some of some of his touches, some of his passes left you frustrated. Sometimes he didn't make the run like Odegaard. Uh, was looking for him to make a run in behind, and he he played the ball, and then Jovic just never made the run. So there was there was moments like that where you're like, "Come on, Jovic, get get into it." But overall, I thought I I didn't think he was poor. I thought he he did what he needed to do. He did play his game, and this is kind of Jovic's game, and you have to understand that. Um, and I think I do think he, I mean he was rather unlucky. I mean, if that early who was it, Mendy, who took that shot. Um, with his right foot rather than playing it across to Jovic. Mm. Um, I think there was a moment where Fede Valverde also could have played Jovic in. So I think he would have had a goal in this game if, like, shoulda, coulda, woulda, just different things happened. But, um, again, he it was probably the most pivotal moment of the match, him drawing that red card and um, earning Real Madrid. It, it, it knocked Real Betis down to 10 minutes, and Real Madrid went on from there to win the game. So... I don't think it was poor. I just want to – let's hope – he just needs to run a game to get his confidence going. So we'll see. We'll see where this takes us. Yeah, it's – Jovic's luck is really an incredible thing. Um, obviously for the thing you guys mentioned, but also that every time he seems to be put into the team, it's at a moment where the team just plays badly as a whole or, like, the scheme is just off. Like, for example, the Mallorca game where Isco was, like, in defensive midfield or whatever. And in this one, obviously, like, our possession game wasn't – clean exactly wasn't the ideas weren't necessarily there um he had only 14 touches throughout the entire game which i think is what most people are taking issue with right like there were a bunch of i didn't look at the comments but on twitter like right there were a bunch of people who are like posting his heat map and they're like well this is like a, a terrible heat map like he's not been involved at all and stuff and it's funny to me that people will take issue with kareem benzema right like a false nine type player they say oh he goes too deep He's getting too involved. 
can you please just stay in the box? Can you just please make runs off the shoulder? And then you get a striker like Jovic who, you know, to be fair, he, he, he does know how to drop deep. He does know how to play layoffs. And he, he, he's done that like kind of in an alternating role um, with, with his strike partner at Frankfurt, but that's not his game. That's not what defines his game. And so you get a striker like Jovic and then it's like, why isn't he involved? Why isn't he having a ton of touches? You know? And it's, it's just interesting to me, kind of like the contradiction in, in those criticisms because, you know, he's not a Kareem Benzema. And to expect in such a weird, such a chaotic game where the only way he could have really gotten involved was doing the things Benzema were doing, coming deep, knowing exactly when to drop off, dribble players, make certain passes, like that would have been the only way for him to do it. You know, that's that's not some, that's not who Jovic is. And so what he can do is what you guys were talking about was make certain runs, occupy defenders, offer a presence in the box, and the ball just didn't fall his way. And so... Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say this was an absolutely incredible performance or whatever, but I think he 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 did do decently. I think he offered what he could in a weird situation, another weird game, and it was fine. And I I, I come away with this with like thinking about the potential that he can offer in the box more than anything. And I don't think he hurt his stock at all in this game. I I think if you analyze his performance within the context of everything. It, it was fine. It wasn't amazing, but I, I find it very hard to say that he was poor. I think also, you know, he's just a different type of striker too that doesn't get involved in terms of mm-hmm. on the ball as much. Now, like, you know, we have examples of maybe he's been looked off by teammates and stuff. I, there's, I think, one thing you can say about him that's different from someone like Mariano or even like someone like Borja Mayra. When Mayra came in today... And very interesting sub, by the way. I, I did not see that coming. I don't think Mayral is even going to be part of the squad, full-time squad. Um, and that alone um, makes me surprised that he played. But it, also, it was an indictment to me that Zidane just didn't want to change the scheme today, which was interesting. So he wanted to go like for like. We basically did with all his subs. And he wanted to keep the two the two striker format. So he brought on Mayral for, uh, for Jovic. Instead of being Rodrigo Vinicius, which I think would have been an interesting look if you brought in someone like Vinicius and Rodrigo, because at that stage of the game, Betis' line was so high. It was so vulnerable. Plus, they were playing with 10 mad. I think one of those two would have made sense. But alas, Real did one. Who cares? But I think um, the thing with Jovic is like, when Mayra came in today, you immediately noticed him. He had a bunch of touches. He drew the penalty. So like, I think... In some ways, you notice other strikers more than you notice Jovic. And for that reason, I think people will will take issue with Jovic because part of them just they don't understand what he does, right? Uh, but he's a really good off-ball mover, and he doesn't need many chances to score. That That's like just kind of the type of striker he is. He's more of like an Icardi than he is um, than he is a Benzema. So, But I think this is a good opportunity to also just talk about the team's offense as a whole. Buchorgenio um, said after this game... Something to the effect of like, you know, I I don't understand like why why people are taking issue and think that we can't score goals. We scored three goals today. That's pretty good. Well, possibly a little bit skewed, but at the same time, he has a point in the sense that Benzema missed, missed three point blank chances. Ramos missed one point blank chance. So three goals is the least we could have come away with in that sense. Um, but I do think there's there's another thing here in that. If you're going to play Jovic on the field and you're going to, if you if you want to take advantage of his off-ball movement, I think you're going to want to have wingers putting crosses into him, right? 
Um, I know that's a very simplified way of looking at it. There was only, I think, 16 crosses tonight. Um, four from Carvajal, three from Fede, two bends. Um, one of them obviously led to a goal. And when they did it, I think Real Betis had some difficulty dealing with those crosses, especially because Jovo chooses that presence in the box that Real Madrid don't normally have. So that's that's one thing that I think we can possibly talk about. And also the fact that Ramos had four shots, Benzema had four shots. Those two again are leading your offense in terms of shot generation. Is I don't know if you want if you think it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's a thing. And that the fact that we are so reliant on Ramos' scoring, not only on set pieces but in actual open play, is again it's I guess it's a weapon in one sense, but at the same time it's alarming that we're relying on it so much. So I'm I'm not that high on our offense today. We obviously scored lots of goals. We got high SG chances. But if you look at how they came about, a lot of it was just transition and just kind of taking advantage of the chaos and what was happening, which is fine. It's good. You want – I mean, how many times have we criticized Real Madrid in the past for not being efficient enough in these types of situations? And, you know, we, we weren't that efficient given some of the chances we missed, but we ended up getting enough goals to win the game. So that's fine. But in terms of, like, looking for causation, in terms of, like, the specific scheme and the specific things we're trying to do offensively and trying to connect that to great chances we created, I I just didn't really find it. And I just thought it was just kind of more organic things happening, which is fine. Like, it's not something – that's not something I say is bad, but it's not something that gets me super excited either because I'm always thinking about repeatability and how we can kind of take this moving forward. I'm not sure exactly how you take – some of the things we did and some of the chances we created and say, well, let's replicate that because it was just kind of more originating from chaos. So if you look at the first goal we scored, it's a throw in on the left. Um, I think by Mendy, Ramadur give it away. And then Odegaard, which I think people have now forgotten because he didn't track back on, on the Real Betis' second goal, but he presses Mendy immediately in like a lone counter-pressing action into a, ba- a bad pass. Valverde intercepts. Benzema goes one versus one and, you know, he gets somewhat fortunate in terms of his dribbling, but he does well and he volleys across into the box and Valverde has stationed himself really well and he converts. And so the repeatable thing I'll say about that is getting someone like Valverde to come into the box and have more people in the box if you're going to cross. So that was good. Um, but then you you um, are looking at uh, the 15-minute chance where this is where... Ramos, I think, ends up like getting that half voice. This comes basically from Ramos stepping up, intercepting, um, forcing a counter track, dribbles forward, and he plays it to Mendy, who then gets it off to Benz, and then Benzema plays that really good cross, and it falls off to Ramos, and Ramos misses a really good chance. So the two really high-quality chances kind of coming from essentially giveaways and Real Madrid forcing transition Um and then kind of like the other notable chances in the half, like one I missed earlier was kind of the Mendy one, which was, I thought Casemiro was going to have a good game when I saw this. He plays a great ball over the top to Mendy, cuts inside and sends it wide. And to me, and seeing like how that pattern kind of replicated in a sense was kind of an indication to be that like Betis, kind of an underrated story is that Betis's defense was not good this game at all. And I think it got even worse in the second half. Um, in the 45th minute, you kind of see them losing sight of someone running off the shoulder again, where Benzema makes a run off the shoulder. And I, I watched that sequence like five times to see if he's like doing any kind of trickery to shake his marker off, and he doesn't. He just makes a straight run off the shoulder, 
and it's completely on track. Like Betis just don't pay attention to him. And it's only after like Kroos's pass is halfway in the air that they react and Ben's chest sit down and he strikes it with his left foot and the goalkeeper makes a great save. So it's like first half, those were kind of how our chances were coming. And then in the 48th minute, in terms of the own goal, again, I, in my opinion, more Real Betis just shooting themselves in the foot where they press high in a throw in pretty ineffectively don't recover well and Real Madrid just plays side to side and then Valverde releases Carvajal in transition and then he plays the cross that's put in by Emerson and in my opinion Benzema was marginally offside there he didn't touch it but I thought he was influencing play Um, but that's that's a different discussion we could have and then I guess another one that I think influenced our XG which is the one where Ramos crosses in the box Keon you were talking about that Benz Benz controls it fires it off the bar a lot of people thought it was in it wasn't and I don't think, because it didn't go in, I think the referees just kind of let play continue and counted on the stat sheet. But on the replay, it was a clear offside. And then you get to the point where, okay, we get to the VAR situation in the 69th minute. You get the red card. And then after that, we get like a number of huge chances against 10 men that inflates like our XG even further. So... To me, I, I don't think it was a bad offensive performance because we obviously created high-quality chances in the first half. I'm just not super sure how much of it came from any kind of like constructive play that was more intentional versus more opportunistic, which, again, is fine. you you got to win football games. you got to take chances as they come and, and, and find opportunities as they come. It's just not something that, in this particular game, makes me super excited for the future. It's more something where I say, okay, we kind of did what we needed to in this game, but... I thought it mostly had to do with just like stuff emanating from chaos, transition plays, us winning the ball back in. Betis is defending like being really, really quite awful. A kind of underrated thing about what they did after they went 3-2 down, which led to a really good Isco chance, another really high XG chances. They started pressing with a man down after they went 3-2 down, which I, I guess I kind of get right there fighting for the goal, but that was just after that. It was just all over. It was just so easy to play through what they were doing. And even before that situation where it was just a 4-4-2 mid-block, wasn't exactly super enthralled with their organization. Like the one moment where uh, Valverde like ends up, that, that chance where Benzema just completely misses, which is the one that really pissed everyone off. Valverde makes just a, a straight run into the channel and Carvalho just doesn't pick him up. And he's way too late on it. And Valverde gets that free cross off. So again, like, Again, I, I, I guess like I kind of rambled on quite a bit here, but I, I don't know if you guys kind of got like the general point I was trying to make in terms of like offense and thinking about what were like the more constructive things we were trying to do that we can like look to replicate in the future versus just us like taking advantage of kind of the end-to-end nature of the game. So, I mean, I, I, I might counter some of your points a little bit because I, I do think there were – you said you're looking for things that would be repeatable or just some overall patterns in our offensive play. And I mean, I don't know, I don't know if it is just a function of this game, but I do think that the system we use and the personnel we had out there um, did make for, did make for some repeatable situations. And so I'll actually use some of the examples you had. Um, I thought just overall throughout the game, we had numbers in the box. Like we always had numbers in the box, even on on most of our crosses, which is something last season 
it usually it was only Benzema in there. I mean, maybe an occasional Ramos foray into into the 18, but usually when we, when we crossed the ball, we only had Benzema in there. Um, I mean, you saw it on the Fede goal. You saw it on the second goal. You saw it on um, the cross that you mentioned with Ramos, who was right next to Benzema, arguably in a better position to take that uh, when Benzema hit the crossbar was Luka Jovic. Um, so... I thought those were. I thought that was an encouraging sign that we got numbers into the box. I think also, and this is kind of forgotten because it happened so early on. How about that great interplay uh, between the team? And there's a, a reoccurring factor with this interplay, but that great interplay two minutes in, mm. um, where Benzema scores, but he was offsides. Um, and the the reoccurring theme that I found was Furlan Mendy, his position. He kind of, kind of saw some parallels to what he did last match, where he's really far up the field. on On this game, he wasn't so much in the half space, but he was uh, playing high and wide to provide that width. But basically, another attacker out there. And I think on the second goal, if you notice, Mendy again was very high. It was Mendy basically as a left winger, Benzema in the central space, and Jovic. Um, to the right of him. And so the three of them were occupying the back four and that allowed Fede to kind of go into the space in between the lines, pick it up in that number 10 role and then switch the field to Carvajal who then crossed it um, for the own goal. So I think, I think Mendy's positioning, and this is something we've seen in the last two games now, um, him playing in a more advanced role, has kind of been something to keep an eye on. And I do think is repeatable and so getting him in the advanced position and getting numbers into the box, those were two things that I think uh, we did a good job of today. And I think it was more of uh, the personnel and the formation that helped, but uh, maybe it was just a function of this game, to your point, Owen. But I don't know. I, I feel like it might there might be some patterns there. So what I'll say to that is, one, I absolutely agree with the point about players getting into the box. Like, I kind of mentioned it when... Uh, on the first goal, we scored with Valverde, but it was not something I emphasized. Um, so that was I, something I probably should have like made more of a point of in terms of like my overall analysis of our offensive scheme. In terms of Mendy's positioning, I, to me, it just kind of seems like normal as to what you do in a four-four-two diamond, right? Like you need at least one of your fullbacks to kind of play as a winger because you have no wingers on the pitch. Um, I mean, I will agree that that's repeatable. I just don't know if that. I was looking for more unique things, I guess. Like, obviously, that is something I like to see. I like to see Bendy playing in a very aggressive role when we're playing in a diamond. I don't know if um, that's, like, something that I'd, I'd really point to as, like, something where I'd say, like, that's, like, kind of, like, a really intelligent move by, like, Zidane or whatever because that's something I expect. But, I mean, yeah, I, I would I would guess I'd say that, like, that is definitely repeatable. It's something that we've done multiple times with the diamond, obviously. And so moving forward, that's a good move in terms of like the second goal though, like more to my point about like, just how basically everything we were doing was coming off some kind of transition situation. And like, in terms of regular possession play, what I could see was, you know, the initial chances we created, honestly, with Benzema, the cross into the box and Valverde making certain runs. Like, but what Valverde was doing, I think, was quite repeatable. And I think that was really good. But with the second goal, right, it's just Real Betis, like, just pressing horribly off the throw-in. And we're able to, again, take advantage of Mendy's high positioning. That was good structure there. But it's 
to for some for a team of Rounders quality, I thought Real Betis just made it far too easy for us in certain situations to just be able to play through them. And again, like giving the ball where us, I guess, doing a good job of winning the ball back and, you know, counterattacking and stuff like that. And then obviously after the red card, it just counting those chances is hard to me because in terms of like qualifying as a great offensive performance, because it is against 10 men and some of those high XG chances were getting to the point where like Real Betis were like pressing with 10 men and we're just playing through them. So, you know, I, I, I would say that there were some things that I liked specifically like what you were saying, packing the box that ended up, I think, being really valuable, which is something two strikers gave us with someone like Jovic with that mentality. And then Valverde, who I think tends to thrive in these types of end-to-end situations, making lots of line-breaking runs into the channels and essentially being kind of like a pseudo-winger slash pseudo-central midfielder, box-to-box central midfielder at times. So I would say that was positive. But overall, like... I, I guess maybe I'm just missing stuff. I just didn't see that much in like regular possession play that that I like that much. And to me is kind of where that's where the improvement needs to come because last season we were great in like counterattacks and transitions and that's where like 50% of our legal goals came. And so like moving forward, I'm always looking for like, well, what are we doing in regular possession play, which is where we're inefficient. And what I mostly saw was an inability to take advantage of Odegaard and then with Isco, it became more of what we'd normally see because he moved deeper, offered a bit more control, and we played more kind of like we did last season. So, I mean, I guess that's kind of where my thinking is coming from. Um, I don't know if you have counters to that or if, like, Keon wants to jump in and offer his thoughts on that. But what, the, the sequence that Matt brought up, like, two minutes in, that really, really skewed my expectations of what we were going to see about from the team offensive because I actually enjoyed that sequence so much. I was like, all right, this lineup's going to work. I got got <laughs> unrealistically high hopes for the lineup um, because it was a bit of everything, right? It was a bit of Odegaard's positioning, his passing, Mendy. Mendy dropping that pass to Benzema like as if he was just kind of like chipping a golf ball onto Benzema's feet, like just served to him on a platter. He was, that was an awesome, awesome sequence. Um, but it also occurred to me, regardless of what happened, like by three minutes in, I knew that no matter what, Rams were going to have a lot of good chances in this game, no matter what, because Betis is the way they were defending. And I think that's part of the excitement of big games, right, is that it allows Rams to showcase their ceiling in a way that, you know, against a team that goes at them a little bit and opens up, it's a little bit more fun. Um Betis are that type of team who's never been afraid to take shots at bigger teams and go toe-to-toe with them, which I think sometimes works in their favor and oftentimes can also be detrimental to them. And to be quite honest, it could have gone either way tonight. Just a few bounces here and there, some bad finishing um, from Real Madrid. If it was any worse, it could have ended up in a different way. Or it could have ended up like you know 5-2 five, five, for Real Madrid on the flip side of that. So it could have gone either way, but... That's part of the way. So I, I do see validity in both sides. Now, here's the thing. Like, what do we take away from this? And what can we apply to future games? Again, I'm very cautious about what we can apply in the sense that if you look at Real Madrid and Zidane in the last few years, what Real Madrid looks like in the springtime is vastly different than what it looks like to start the season. And... Last season was the first time they didn't wake up in the Champions League for this for for um, for for the knockout rounds, but they did wake up in the league. And all things considered, as bad as they were at the Etihad and shooting themselves in the foot, um, 
you know, there was a prop, there was a world that some bounces maybe went their way and, and they did win, but ultimately Manchester didn't deserve to win, so it doesn't really matter. But um, to take this even further, last season, if you remember, the starting lineups initially, we had a couple where both Hamas and Bale were playing. Um, and that basically told us nothing about what was actually going to happen by the end of this. So I, I, my point is just that I don't know if we see this again. Um, and if we do, how often we see it? Um, so, so that that be that be my that be one of my main questions, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm like just looking for like certain. I, what I'm trying to do is like with as little information as possible, just trying to kind of glean information about what Zidane is trying to do in the future and trying to get an idea of that. I'm not necessarily saying that whatever I'm critiquing here is just how it's going to pan out for Real Madrid because it wasn't until November last season, essentially, that we saw Real Madrid playing at a level that was worthy of winning the league title. Um, I guess just to round out my points, because I'm not sure if I actually argued what I was saying effectively, it kind of felt like I was all over the place. Um, well, just to add on, like, because I was talking about Betis' defense, I, I, I'm pretty sure you guys... Uh, recognize this, but their offensive corners basically just chances for us, essentially, yeah. and I was excited at a certain point when they got a corner that I was like, okay, this is going to be a counterattack going our way, and the red card situation actually comes from us countering off of Betis' corner where three players go to try to retain the ball and just completely miss it, and Isco, who I was fairly neutral on throughout the game, I was positive on what he did in transition, and in that moment, he does a fantastic job of finding a way to tip a ball in the air to Benzema, who then plays a neat pass into Jovic, who's onside, and he's away. And there it is. That's the red card. And so just kind of like, I think to put further context into like what I thought of Betis' defensive performance, but to what I was saying, when we started the second half, we had the own goal, then we had Ramos uh, crossing the box and Ben shooting off the bar, which is offside, um, and to me, like, I would discount that, but not the earlier chance Matt was saying, because the second minute chance had a clear, like, process to it that, okay, if just he's a little onside, like, it still works, whereas for this one, he got, the only way he got the advantage for getting the ball in the box was by being offside, um, but basically those, if you, if you still want to count that, we had no chances after that, like, significant or otherwise, I think I counted every single shot we had, so we had no shots after that until the red card. And then what we have is the one where Valverde makes the run into the channel that Carvalho doesn't track. So Benzema completely misfits a tap-in. Then we have the penalty goal. Then we have um, Valverde's cross to Isco, which Isco like hits straight at the goalkeeper. And then we have the one in the 98th minute where Benzema misses the half, the half volley, which he probably should have scored as well. So it's like, not that, like we have the, we have an own goal, we have like an offside chance, nothing until the red card, and then four really great chances after the red card. So it's like, it's hard to me to, I guess, looking at this, I what I can mainly point to it as, as being like, if you want to like look at this offensive performance as like really, really good, is like the first two really good chances we created, which was obviously the goal, and then the one where Ramos uh, misses the chance and... One came off a counterattacking situation and the other came, or I think the second also came off a counterattacking situation. So it's just like, to me, looking at that, it's like, I don't know. I don't know how excited I can be about what we saw, but I do agree with Matt that 
to say that there would be nothing to take away from this game as, as repeatable as probably an over-exaggeration on my part because there certainly were things, especially with what we were doing in the box and how Valverde was moving into the channels and stuff like that, which caused uh, Real Betis all sorts of problems and his stuff that Valverde does, and it's not really much of like a change or whatever to ask him to continue to do that stuff. Yeah, no, I, I think we're on the same page. I mean, I when you factor in just like how chaotic of a match this is and then the number of, I mean, you made a great point about just simply the number of chances we had after the red card. I think um, that plays a major role in our XG. So I think, the, I think those factors do come into play, but like you said, there are, it may be um, an exaggeration to say that there's nothing repeatable from this match. Cause as we both agree, the numbers in the box, uh, maybe Mendy's position or at least, his ability to get um, playing more advanced positions is, is something we can take from this. Um, I guess the only other thing I want to uh, talk about, because we haven't, we haven't mentioned it yet. is just wait real quick before you get to that. I just want to say to people who keep saying we never have disagreements on this podcast, take that we had a disagreement. <laughs> and then we came to an amenable agreement after discussing our points. Logically, there you go. There's your disagreement. I don't want to hear anyone complaining that, we always just say the same thing on the podcast every single time. This is clear evidence that we don't, but that we're willing to hear each other's points out and, and come to, I guess, a certain middle point, middle places. As Matt said, we're basically on the same page now. So no more. I don't want to hear any more complaints about that. Alternatively, agreed, you could agreed. just listen to the Thursday podcast and listen to Lucas and I disagree for 45 <laughs> yeah. minutes. There's yeah, you a... and Lucas disagree on literally everything. Exclusively on Patreon. For the juicy, juicy arguments between Keon and Lucas. Yeah, you got to pay for the. But drama. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the only other thing I wanted to point out, and this is kind of more to your point, Om, uh, is just the individual brilliance of Kareem Benzema and just some of his technical quality. I mean, it was it was unbelievable today. I mean, even the first goal, what he did just on that wing, I didn't even, I didn't expect him to come out with the ball. Um, by the byline, I just I, I didn't even know where it came from. And then there was a moment in the second half um, where he had some interplay with Fede Valverde, and he just uh, kind of that Iniesta move where he takes it from one foot to the other really quickly, and then chops it back again. And he just there were just some magic moments from him. And I thought, despite missing um, some good opportunities, and honestly, it felt like he he definitely I can't believe he didn't come out of this game with a goal, but. Uh, despite that, I thought he was, along with Fede Valverde, for me, those two were men of the match and some of our best performers. I think it's it's a little bit, again, it's it can be good in a lot of ways because I don't know what happens if you take him out of this team. Um, it's also a little bit scary how reliant we are on him offensively. And if he's not scoring, he's doing a million of other things, including defending, including setting up people, including a bunch of things um, like just sneaking up in the blind spot of an opposing player, picking his pocket, just sneaking up on his blind side, picking his pocket, creating a transition opportunity out of nothing. He's doing all those things to set up the setup for today's goal. Miss, you know, two to three, I would say is, is probably like a fair way of putting it. Um, chances that he probably should have put away. I think the volley off the crossbar was probably a little bit more difficult than we would all like to say sitting at home, watching it on the couch. Um, but you take him out of the team, and it's and it's scary how the team is reliant on him. Um, he was he was really good in this game. He was uh, to me along with Mendy. 
Um, and I would add Ramos by the end of it were, were, were three of my standouts today um, for Real Madrid. And I also just want to kind of circle back before if Ohm has anything to say about Benzema again. Um, I, I want to ra- kind of maybe conclude the Jovic discussion by saying, I hope, you know, whatever the takeaway is, I, I hope we see Jovic more. I don't think this is where you draw any conclusions for Jovic. And if anything, I think you actually kind of have to read between the lines and, and think of all the good stuff he did today, despite not touching the ball much, despite not being involved much. He was still influential in this game in other ways, as we mentioned. And I believe there is a place for him in this team, um, not maybe not as a starter every game, uh, but as a rotational piece, either alongside Benzema or even in... in in some schemes without Benzema, where maybe we don't see Benzema, we have we have uh, Hazard on one side, Asensio on the other, uh, replaced with Vinicius and Rodrigo, if you like, Jovic up top, Odegaard behind. I think there's this team is very versatile, and we all know Zidane loves his versatility. I think there is a lot of room for Jovic, and I just think he needs to get going. Again, I'll, I'll circle back to Emerson taking the red card and fouling him. Um, on that play, I think there is an alternate universe where he doesn't get fouled, he scores that goal, and things are just completely different. The discussion around this game is completely different um, with regards to him. So I, I just hope whatever happens, I hope Jovic get, continues to get playing time and continues to build rhythm. However long it takes, he's still a kid, and he is a, is a traditional striker that I think can be re- relied upon or at least deserves a chance to at least be given a fair assessment whether he should be relied upon or not. Um, so that that just me interrupting the Benzema discussion for a second there. <laughs> so for Benzema, uh, it's I understand why a lot of people are just going off on him. He did miss some really good chances, but I'm just looking through my notes, like command effing his name and He's like basically involved in every single chance we created. Um, obviously for missing some of them, but also for creating a ton of them, right? Like he ends up assisting Valverde for the goal. Um, he's the one that plays the cross that gets Ramos' best chance of the game. Then Benzema makes a really good run off the shoulder. As I mentioned, that Betis don't track. He chests it down. The goalkeeper makes an exceptional save. Um, then you have... The one right, the the offside one. I, again, I'm like not sure whether I should count that whenever I talked about it. But again, the offside chance was there with Benzema making another run. Benzema was involved in the red card situation where he plays a really good pass and chipped pass into Jovic. And then I think the one that Matt was talking about, I don't know if he was, but it, I guess it was kind of similar to what he was saying in terms of his dribbling move. It was like the 84th minute where uh, this is where Betis are trying to press a man down. And Real Madrid progress easily. And then Benzema gets the ball on the right wing. And this is when Betis maybe have a chance to get the ball back. And he just evades two defenders, releases Valverde down the right. And Valverde's yeah. cross finds Isco. So, okay, yeah. That so that was the one that was That was just like, damn. Like, that was Benzema just... That was a moment where I thought a lesser player would have lost the ball. And what was a really good situation, we wouldn't have been able to take advantage of because we didn't have the qualitative advantage. But because Benzema was on the pitch, we did. And so... I just think looking at the totality of the performance to lock into the two misses and say, well, that's it. He was bad and he was offside certain times, you know, because of that, he was bad. I mean, he was literally our best offensive player in the game. And 
the only reason I give Vede Valverde man of the match is because I thought he hardly made any mistakes throughout the entire game that I think couldn't be pinned down to scheme. And so that's why I had make him man of the match. But otherwise, I thought Benzema was fantastic. And I just I honestly don't think we're winning this game without what he did, um, especially with our inability to get Odegaard involved. And in terms of Keon talking about over-reliance, I think in terms of someone to do more of the build-up, link-up play and stuff, I think that comes with finding a way, finding that chemistry with Odegaard and making that work, which I think is just a question of time. And once that happens, I don't know if that means we can move away from Benzema, but I start seeing more lineups with Jovic that make more sense to me and Jovic thriving more than we've seen him in the past. We'll circle back to Benzema um, in a bit. Um, <laughs> okay, here's uh, I guess here's a couple things. Um, let's play a game. Is this a real quote or is this a fake quote I just made up? Okay. Zidane says after the game of Courtois, we know what he can do, not just in shot stopping, but also with the ball at his feet. <laughs> <laughs> that I real, I refuse to believe that's a real quote. It's a real quote. Real quote. To be fair, Corto had like one um, unbelievable vertical pass to Cruz in the first half, which shocked me. But I'll say at the same time, it was that close to being intercepted in a disaster. Cruz or Odegaard? Know. I don't know. They all look the same to me. I'm thinking of one to Odegaard. He, I also <laughs> thought. Um, he distributed. I mean, he always does it well with his his hands. But he he had one. Uh, I remember like just really quick distribution w- with his hands out to Mendy, and it was like a. I mean, it was one of those only a goalkeeper could do. Just like I don't even. I can't describe it. Where he just uh, overthrows it and just it kind of curves right into Mendy's path. I thought that was pretty badass. Mm. <laughs> um. Um. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, just because we're on the topic of Courtois, like, really good game, bar the fact that I just think we've talked about how Kroos missed the pass. We talked about Odegaard not tracking back, but Courtois just shouldn't be letting that in. And I think that's maybe a victim of of his height a little bit, like his ability to get down really quickly and stretch out and make that save. But, I mean, that's basically kind of like the only negative I had because I I honestly might have been considering him man of the match if he didn't let that in because that was... That was a low XG chance. I think if you were to take shot placement into it, into account, it would be a little higher. But I still think Courtois should be saving that. And, you know, I think the fact that Odegaard didn't track back on that kind of saved him from a, a little criticism there. But also the fact that he made a fantastic save earlier, I guess. But that that was disappointing to me. But otherwise, I thought he was really good. I, I you know, just... I actually think we, in a way, we underrated Odegaard's performance in this game. I actually thought he was pretty good by a couple of things. Um, one thing in addition uh, to not tracking back that I took issue with was he did the, he tried this dummy in um, oh yeah in the twenty yeah. fifth minute and or no it wasn't twenty fifth it was thirtieth minute and uh, that was really, kind of that was a bad idea <laughs> what yeah Casemiro is not on the same same <laughs> wavelength I said kind of a big difference when yeah. you said not twenty five minutes. It, yeah, it, I was looking anyway, at a different part of the note, but yeah, it was a uh, it was not a, it was not a good idea because it, it it led to Real Betis surging the other way. Um, I thought Varane's coverage in this game was pretty good. I know we can nitpick defense as a mm-hmm. whole, the issues with the system, but Varane individually, I thought his coverage was pretty good. 
Um, how how have we not talked about it at this point? But in my opinion, there are two refereeing decisions mm-hmm. that are uh, contentious and that I actually thought Roundup were fortunate to get, but a lot of people disagree with me. So one was the own goal, where to me, and again, I it used to be that if you were like so marginally offside, like you give benefit of the doubt of the attacker, but the way the rules work now where it's down to the millimeter, if, it, if they're offside, they're offside, right? And to me in that one, Benzema's offside, like if because they, they drew the lines afterwards, whatever, and he was just barely offside by, by the rules. And so it's like, okay, he didn't touch the ball, but there's no way um, Mandy was the one who did the own goal, right? Yeah, or Emerson. 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 Yeah, Emerson. Emerson, who had uh, a really tough game. But yeah. if Emerson, um, no way he's making that run to that defensive run and, and touching the ball like that if Benzema isn't there. So to me, via the offside rules, clearly influencing play offside shouldn't count. But because it's more of a spirit of the game thing, right? Like Benzema is just so barely offside. What advantage is he taking there? Okay, I to me, whatever. I'll, I'll accept that. Even if, it, even if it was to go to the other... Like, that's not something that I'd get in arms about. The bigger thing to me was the penalty. And a lot, a lot of people were just saying it was just a clear penalty. And it's highly possible that I'm just an idiot and I'm not looking at it properly. But to me, it looked like Mayoral, when on a particular angle, when he was swinging at the ball and he completely missed it, it forced his right hip into Bartra that kind of ended up knocking Bartra over that then caused him to touch the ball with his hand. So to me, I just don't really see how that's a penalty there because it was given by a handball and it seemed like Mayoral kind of initiated that and caused that to happen. But tons of people disagreed with me. They didn't really understand what I was saying. So I'd be interested to hear what you guys think and whether I'm just completely off in this moment. I don't think it was a penalty. I wouldn't have called it. Um, I I didn't I decided not to touch on it in my post game piece. Um, Coward. I, I, Coward. Just I, I basically just focused on the fact that Ramos scored a Penenka winning penalty. I mean that that's that's pretty incredible. I think it was twenty two straight or something ridiculous that he scored. Um, and I think during that run, I think ten of them have been Penenkas. But I don't think it was a penalty with with the um, with the the own goal. I think that is that that's a correct call. You know, interfering with play. You know, ultimately the guy, the guy put the ball in the back of his own net. That was his own thing. Like he he latched onto a cross and put it into his own net. And who, you know, I I guess you can that that one is tricky. I guess because interfering with play can be, um, is a little bit subjective in that in that way. I think there are a lot of fuzzy rules in football. Like I I don't know if you guys saw the Kai Havertz handball today. Did you get a chance to see that? So uh, I, I think I, I did. It bounced off his uh, ribs, right, and went onto his arm. Yeah, and it was a clear handball. They counted the goal, and then there was a justification I read from the Premier League rules why that's the correct call. And it's a, an absurd rule when you look at it. It's the correct call, but it's an absurd rule. It's that if the reason why they didn't call it because if you if an attacker handles the ball and it leads to him scoring. Or a, uh, or it goes directly to a teammate who scores. You have to call that a handball, no goal. However, if it's a handball, and that's an unintentional handball, by the way, you have to call it back. However, if it's an unintentional handball that 
the next bounce doesn't directly lead to a goal, then you let play go on. So in this case, the Kai Havertz handball, it was unintentional handball, goes to a, a teammate, teammate doesn't score, but on the second bounce, they score, so they couldn't call it. So, like, the, there's uh, my point was that the, <laughs> the amount of absurdities and, and things in, in football rules that are either fuzzy or just don't make sense and need to be kind of re, rehauled, um, there's a little bit too many. The handball is one of them, and I think, like, just the offside thing is still a little bit fuzzy in certain situations. In this one, I think it should have stood mostly because I think that's on Emerson. You know, obviously, if Benzema gets on the end of that and scores, then that's, that's different. But Emerson literally gets to that cross, puts it in his own net. I think I, I, I think it would be unfair to punish Benzema in that situation. Yeah, oh, yeah, and I I couldn't even follow your uh, your rule explanation <laughs> there. So that's how that's how fuzzy that is. Um, and I I uh, I think the own goal was was definitely fair. I think the red card was definitely fair and it was the right call. Um, the thing I'm I can see where the controversy is and a little bit iffy on is the handball. Um, I didn't. I didn't think so in real time, uh, but when I saw it in slow mo, and it was, I felt like it was cut a little bit short. Because oh, to your point, um, it really only showed the end of Borja Mayoral's like momentum. Um, so in slow mo, I thought it was a handball, but in real time, I did not. So I don't. I don't know. I can see. I can see the controversy. But do you think it's valid to say it's not a penalty because Mayoral caused Barthra to fall, or am I like not? Uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think that's. That's not my understanding of the rule. Because like, like his. Because was wasn't his arm in an unnatural position? Yeah, but my, my point is that Myrall caused him to kind of like fall. What was the handball before that? Like, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there's no controversy over the red card, right? Like that is as clear as. It- Oh, that yeah, that yeah, that's for me pretty clear to me. Clear. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I guess I don't know. I guess I gotta watch it ten more times again because <laughs> yeah. again, like I'm not I'm not confident that I'm correct here, but that's I watched it enough times where I just kept thinking the same thing, and I'm like, either I'm crazy right now, or um, all of you are wrong, and it's probably more likely that I'm wrong than this. But we'll see. wait, what uh, what is it that again. what is it that you're Asking, so I, I I didn't think it was a penalty, but I'm confused as to what what it is specifically that you're asking with the Myral incident. Whether which because part of it? I think Myral caused him to like put Barthra off balance, causing the handball. So now I feel like an idiot because I I didn't realize there was a handball that was being called, and so. <laughs> So, for, first things first, if you like our content, patreon.com slash managingmadrid if you want really expert analysis on this stuff. Uh, second of all, it's because I was, I was, I'm writing my immediate reactions. All I saw with the replay, and I was listening to the commentary at the time, I thought it was just a foul they called on, on Bartra that he pulled Mayoral down or something. And that's part of the reason. So, I'm looking at it now on loop. I'm, I, and I'm watching it now. It's like... I don't know. It just looks pretty clearly to me like Myra causes Bartra to like his to like fall forward and his arm touches the ball and that's why it was called. Unless there was some other handball before that or something that was being called. Like 
am I like crediting Myral too much for that? Like, did Myral not do anything that caused Bogdan to fall? I'm looking at it now from the handball angle, and I still wouldn't have called it because it's just it doesn't look like a handball at all in the sense like he's Bar- Bartro's just getting pushed to the ground and if he's not he's just like it's a challenge 50-50 they're flying in and he's clearly not trying to change the direction or arc of the ball with his hand and he just falls into it with his shoulder or like the top of his top of his arm so i i still stand by it thankfully that i don't th- i wouldn't have called it <laughs> okay i just watched it again and yeah i i agree with you um i think for Hamirel pushed him in okay so Good. Again, disagreement came to an agreement, but a lot of people, man, were telling me, and everyone watched the replays, and it's just, I, I had to question myself again and again because, like, I didn't find anyone who, who agreed with me. Um, but there we go. There's, there's that. We still disagree on the, uh, the own goal. So there's that. For for anyone who wants disagreements on the podcast, you can hold on to that. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted your thoughts on that because I know that's. A big talking point. Puyol tweeted whatever zip, like the zip emoji. Canales, um, not Puyol. No, Puyol tweeted. Oh no, Puyol tweeted out just a bunch of emojis that indicated that like it was being rigged, and then Canales ended up tweeting out that. So that was a big talking point about again, like is the league being rigged? Um, so I just wanted to know what you guys thought about those particular decisions. I didn't. I did not expect or think that Puyol would tweet something like that. It's interesting. Um, also, I mean, Barcelona play. Respect. This is just who they are, Keon. But also, mostly, not only because it's Puyol, but also because um, not like not that Puyol has never cried to the referee before. He's done that quite a bit. But also because if he's planning on running for um, La Liga presidency at some point, it's a weird look to do that. Um, yeah. So let's. <laughs> Do we have anything else before we move on to some patron stuff? Uh, just uh, some mentions on, on player performances. But if you guys had, it'll be rapid fire. So if you guys had anything more concrete, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um. No, I'm good. You, you go ahead. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, and if I did already, I apologize. But Keon was talking about Modric being disappointed. Uh, being disappointed in Modric's performance, I was as well, and I pretty much agreed with everything he said. And one moment, which I think was less obvious in terms of his giveaways, was in the 55th minute. Modric wins the ball back. I thought he had done really well to win it back. And then he plays this bad pass behind Isco, who can't control it. Betty's counter down the right, and Fekir cuts inside and sends a shot wide of the post. And that was like one of two decent chances they had in the second half, with the other one coming from a Carvalho long shot. And the only reason I included here is because the placement was pretty good. But otherwise, you know, normally that's not a great quality chance. So just a very weird performance from Modric where he just did things you don't expect him to do. Um, obviously, Fede was great. We've talked about that plenty. In terms of, like, Varane, I just wanted to highlight Keon talking about him. I thought Varane ultimately had the better performance than Ramos because... Ramos made certain mistakes that Varane didn't, and I thought Varane's just as good defensively in terms of like some of the mistakes Ramos made. There was a couple times where he gambled, like one where he came to shut off a deeper option and Fekir was slipped in behind in the fourth minute. This was kind of the first shot of either side had in the game, and I think Ramos kind of came in to shut off, shut down Emerson. It was just a weird sequence where we had so many players surrounded that area, just couldn't win the ball back. 
Ramos gets attracted to it and Fekir is away and he ends up getting a shot off that Varane ends up saving Ramos there, comes over and blocks that shot. And then there's one with the Joaquin who like made a really good through ball. I don't know if this is the one Matt was talking about where Ramos, he, he has his man covered, but he just gambles like, do I shut off the passing lane? And he just does it at the exact wrong time to where he's in no man's land and Joaquin's brilliant pass goes by him. And so those were like mainly the two reasons. And then Keon also mentioned some giveaways. So like in the balance, I'd say Varane was probably our best defender of the game. Um, and then Mayoral. Again, solid, nothing unspectacular. But when Keon was talking about the difference between a Jovic type striker and Mayoral type striker, Mayoral is one who likes to be involved more, who when he was coming up and out of Castilla, we thought he's more of a complete forward type of player. And I thought he made good runs, tried to get involved. He tried to facilitate combinations. And obviously he caused the penalty. And however contra- like controversial it is or however fortuitous it was that we got it, he still made that run and put Barto under pressure that ended up being a game-winning moment literally for us. So I don't know what his future is like with us. It's probably over pretty soon. But if this is like the greatest contribution he's made to us, like, you know, I'll say thank you and I'll take it. <laughs> and, you know, it's... We we sometimes like judge I think careers too harshly, right? Like if you don't make it at Madrid, your career is a failure. But I think if, for example, Myral has this moment and then goes on to have like a pretty successful career at like a mid-table club or whatever, I think he made it. I think he ended up fulfilling his potential by being, you know, a first a top-flight footballer who had chances to play at Real Madrid, did play at Real Madrid, and end up being crucial in a game like this. So thank you, Myral, for that. Amen. Thank you, Borja Mayra. Um, I have nothing else to really add to that. So, are we? I think we're. This is we're moving on to patron stuff now. Yep. Okay. By the way, what time are we at right now? Because I'm pretty sure we're way over what I said we'd be. One hour twenty-eight. So. Yeah. Okay. So I was way off. Before we started recording, we, I, I just kind of threw out there like, how long do you guys think we're going to go? Because I thought this was going to be a longer one, just given the way this game unfolded. Optimistic Ohm predicted one hour and five minutes, which I thought was <laughs> delusion. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there's no way. Unless the only way we're keeping it to one hour and five minutes is like if this is, if we're talking about like a training session here, like we're talking, we're like dissecting some rondos and, and we end up only talking an hour and five well, minutes. I, I ended up talking way more than I anticipated. So I shot myself in the foot there. So patreon.com slash managing if you guys want access to at least two extra bonus shows per week we have a special one as as mentioned in the intro of this podcast um which will run just a couple more days until the end of september and then uh, the deal the deal changes in october so make sure you sign up on patreon.com slash managing madrid we have one patron question that uh trickled in just before we started recording so we're going to read it our patron elian zacco says this is for the post-match podcast if you tell me that Benzema played well, I'm going to lose a little respect for you. Today he was atrocious. We are lucky to win. Five offsides. Keeps taking the ball from better situated players and played only one pass to his striking partner and that resulted in the red card. And other than that, he acted like he wasn't there. Oh yeah, missed at least three chances including an empty net. Then Zidane keeps playing, keeps him in the game instead of Jovic who admittedly wasn't awe-inspiring but he at least didn't get in the way of the attack. I know it sounds a bit whack, but I 100% believe that Benzema is threatened by Jovic. And thus, when they play together, he doesn't look for him, 
even though we all know how good Benzema can be as a playmaking striker. I know it's a rant, but I want to know your thoughts on it. Well, I think uh, Ilian may have lost uh, respect for me pretty early on in the podcast because I think, again, I thought <laughs> Benzema was just phenomenal today. Obviously, missed a couple chances, but just his technical brilliance, everything he brought to the game, the assist alone uh, was just uh, it, it was a beauty. Uh, just if you're if you love football, how can you not love that? That's my that's my response. So uh, I, yeah, I think Ilian, sorry if I uh, lost your respect a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, you want to lose some respect uh, to? Yeah, we. I mean, yeah, we went over. Uh, I think we pretty much answered in terms of uh, him wanting thoughts on it. Like we discussed it extensively, and so all I can say is like, I completely disagree with this assessment, um, respectfully. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess there it is. Like respect lost, but what can I say? I I I gotta stand by my opinion because I think it's well founded and. The evidence kind of supports it when I kind of went through all of the goals he was, uh, the chances and, and stuff he was involved in. Like, I think to just judge it on missed chances, like, it, I guess you can do that, but it misses kind of everything about what Benzema is and how he impacts the game. I think, like with all players, you just have to do a quick cost benefit analysis over long sample sizes and see does this player bring more to the table than he takes away? And if the answer is yes, then he's an important player. And if the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't play him as much. I think with Benzema, it's a resounding yes. I do think you have to be cognizant of the fact that this is a player who has only outperformed his XG three times in his Real Madrid career in the league. So he does not finish his chances all the time. We know that. That's nothing new. It's not something well, where... Well, of the data we have, because... We only go back to fourteen fifteen, so he may have overperformed other times. But since fourteen fifteen, fair point. Only that many times. I think. I think it's. But I think it's one of those things that you know. While we're not necessarily, we're not obviously proud to say you know, he's missed these chances because I think, especially during the last two years of the Ronaldo era, I think we really, really needed him to score the goals he was missing. Um, he was missing some sitters. And Ronaldo himself, for all the shtick he got for "quote unquote" holding Benzema back, set up Benzema quite a bit and didn't get the assist for them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in the last two years, Benzema has has been really, really good, and has been basically a one-man offense with with little support in terms of scoring. If you look at his xG chain last season, it's like he is number one on the team, and it's not even close. Thirty-one point three. Um, that, which is the total XG of every possession the player is involved in. Um, Benzema is by far and away the most important. I think the the interesting thing is that, you know, this kind of goes back to saying, I would like to see Jovic play more, even without Benzema, meaning I would be fine to see what Jovic would look like with Benzema off the bench, off the pitch, like just on the bench. Um, and I guess it kind of goes back to just thinking, as much as I love Benzema and I love what he brings, you know, I think we're all curious to see what this team looks like, right? Out of just out of curiosity, even with without him, it's in a it's in a far less dramatic way, kind of similar to the fact that Barcelona relies so much on Messi. And you look at the numbers, and it's like if you take Messi out of this Barcelona team, it's like what even happens to them? You just assume, just looking at the numbers, they will just melt into like some kind of. Um, some kind of like 
unrecognizable team that I don't even know how to how they would even carry that offense. But at the same time, you just be like curious, like what happens, like if you just see the team without him once, what does it look like? You know, do you put like Asensio in a false nine role? Do you do you put Rodrigo in a false nine role? Do you put Jovic there? He's maybe taking advantage uh, of some chances. I I just want to see it. We never have had a chance to see it, right? Like in the past two years, when have we seen it? I'm th- trying to think of the games that Benzema didn't play. I think there was one out of out of necessity. That he didn't play, but that's it, right? I so as much as I love Benzema, I, I would I would like to see the team in one or two games without him, just mm-hmm. to see what it looks like. Though mm-hmm. so I don't think you helped your case in terms of respect when you compared Benzema to Messi, but I do I do agree with like the the logic of that analogy, and we need to find a way. We need to find a way to not be super reliant on a guy because unless I mean I guess lockdown could happen again. You never know, but unless that situation happens again we're going to reach the point where Benzema's gassed where his form starts to drop off like it did in December and suddenly we're like well what do we do and which is why I think he on your point about we need to give Jovic a chance some string of games because not just immediately for his own form but in terms of the long-term prospects of the season it makes sense and we ought to find a way to do it and to me Odegaard is the key to that but we'll see how it pans out Concluding thoughts? Probably nothing, right? I probably uh, ask you guys for concluding thoughts every five minutes. So I, uh, unless something's changed, <laughs> you don't have anything new. <laughs> we can do patient Concluding shadows. thoughts is I... Concluding thoughts, I was just going to say, is I really like the uh, discussion we had today and, like, the debate and stuff. So this, like, I always have fun on it, but, like, it, I don't like listening to podcasts, but I do like doing podcasts because of the discussion we have. And I always feel like I come out of it learning and way more and having more coherent opinions about the game and about the team every time I, I, I'm basically done with this. So, like, I really appreciate this. And it's a privilege to me to kind of be on this and be able to talk through this with you guys. Likewise, likewise. And I think uh, all, all I'll add is that it's a quick turnaround. We got a game on Wednesday, and so we'll see. Going back to that discussion, we'll see if any of these things carry over. We'll see what type of systems Adon use, how he surprises us this time with his lineup. So uh, it's a good turnaround, which I'm sure we're all happy about. Uh, I echo, echo all the sentiments. It's it's awesome having these conversations with you guys. I think it's uh, it's a very unique and privileged situation we're in that we get to do this and we get to have a bunch of people kind of listen to us ramble like this, but also just talk congruently about how we feel about this team and kind of analyze it in a way that I think makes sense to do it. And that is to not rush it, have hour and a half discussions about a single game. And by the way, we have two giant segments coming up after this part two and part three, Castilla corner plus Las Blancas. So actually maybe all before we go into patron shoutouts, maybe lead us into Las Blancas for part two. What, what should listeners expect for that? Right. I completely forgot about that. Um, well, we talk about the very briefly, the friendly that, uh, Real Madrid Femenino played against Madrid CFF, which no one could watch. It was the same closed-door situation as the men's friendlies, but we give you whatever updates we can, lineup substitutes. We talk about some really questionable COVID-19 regulations in regard to how that will specifically affect Premier Iberdrola and its unprofessionalized status and how that's all falling into that and how it could be like a really, really negative thing. Like you could end up stopping the league and like we go into good depth with that. Gabe ended up being able to join this podcast. So he really gives us some good context there. So that was some good stuff. And then after that, we go into talking about the two international games, Spain 
destroying Moldova 9-0, where Marta Cordera got a lot of time. He broke down her performance. And then Sweden drew 1-1 with Iceland in like a very high-stakes Euro-qualifying game where if whoever won that would have gone to the top of the table, but it ended up being a draw. And that set up like a second encounter, which will essentially decide the group between them. And so Jakobsen Aslani played that game. It was really good stuff. And Grant and I essentially broke those games down. It's kind of like the second half of it. Um, and so, yeah, it should be another good pod uh, for, for us. And basically after that, it'll be live Las Blancas games because we play Barcelona next Sunday. So, uh, all right, so that sounds great. Uh, nice to see Gabe make an appearance there. Um, so stick around for part two, Las Blancas, and then part three, Castilla Corner. Quick shout-out to our $10-plus patrons who get a specific shout-out on the podcast. Oluwapamimo Oladonjoy, Ese underscore Davisito, Willie Reed, William Merchant, Way Pairing, Tyler Simon, Tyler Dixon, Tobias Arroyo, Bacher, Tamid Kalam, Talib Naushad, Sujaiwani, Sumanchu Singh, Shabazz Sharapov, Santos Solorzano, Said Mahad, Saad Omar, Rovi Tagiev, um, Raul Gutierrez, Raghav Potluri, Rafael Servia, Peña Maridisa, San Francisco Bay Area, Astro Barrera, Oli Michael, Nick Ribeiro, Nelson Masariego, Muxi Thangal, Mowgli, Mikhail Nilsson, Marin Myrtle, Martin Ridman, Magnus Lex, MJ Diego, Michael Cruchon, Leon Savernakis, Kunal Tilakar, Kevin Rivera, Keith Lizenby, Catherine Fagundo, Karen Scherer, John Useglio, John Fernandez, Jeff Thurston, Jason Fitz, Graham Gerard, Gary Cohut, Frederick Rantakiro, Frederick Sundros, Faisal Hamdan, Eric Rogers, Eloy Enriquez, Daniel Williams, Dan Blatch, Christian Toft, Christian Gonzalez, Christian Acosta, Charles Williams, Brennan Powers, Brennan Stevens, Austin Fiori Erdman, Ashik Bashar, Anthony Armesto, Anirud Singh, Adam Dorsey, Varun, Solomon Ortiz, Fabian Moreno, and Philip Hammer. Thank you guys so much for your support. Love you all. Oh, thank you. Matt, thank you. Chat soon and hello, buddy. Thanks, guys. Hello, buddy. On the Another episode of Las Blancas podcast. We're going to cover a, a little bit of news items before diving into the two international break games where Spain and Sweden played. I'm your host, Om Arvin, and I am joined by Grant Little, as usual, and this time by Gabe Lezra, making his, I think, second appearance on the podcast. How are you doing, my man? Doing well, brother. Um, you know, as well as you can be. Things are a little tough in the world right now, so... You know, just trying to distract myself by uh, doing my – I was going to curse. I don't know if we curse on this show, but doing my goddamn best to try to watch <laughs> the goddamn games. But the Spanish media and the league just are desperate not to allow us to do this. So, you know, did my best. <laughs> Grant, how, how's it going, man? You know, I'm, I'm pretty good other than the fact that SVTV and um, the VPN for Sweden hates me. 
but um, we're figuring it out. <laughs> right. Watching <laughs> watching any of these games is just never easy, man. Like, But, again, that's why we have multiple people. I was able to get most of the Sweden game. Grant was able to get most of the Spain game. So that's, again, we're a team. We're in this together. We cover each other's backs. So we, sh- we should have everything covered for you guys. Let's just start off with a little bit of news. Real Madrid played their first preseason game uh, just a few days back, and they defeated Madrid CFF 1-0. And essentially they had planned, obviously, to play many preseason games before that, but because of COVID-19 complications, they essentially were unable to, and COVID-19 complications coming from the other team, not from Real Madrid Femenino. So... They played it, and absolutely no one was able to watch it, just like the Real Madrid's men's team's friendlies, because it was behind closed doors, it wasn't televised, and essentially all the information was coming from journalists at Ancho Rodriguez. We got the starting 11, which was Johanna, Kenti Robles, Ivana Andres, Peter Babet, Marta Corredera, Casi, Maite Eros, Lorena Navarro, Marta Cardona, Jessica Martinez, and Olga Carmona. We also had substitutes, Kioma and Teresa Abiera, who came on for Lorena and Olga. We missed out on some stars, obviously, because we have players out on international duty for Sweden and Spain as well. That was a still pretty strong 11 that we were able to pull, pull out, and it was good that we were able to get a 1-0 win against Madrid CFF. But, I mean, that's pretty much the end of all the info we got from that game, as nobody was able to watch it. There are some... Rumors. I'm not sure how official it is that we are preparing another friendly against Depor. We will continue to update you as that like becomes official or as that information is provided to us. But yeah, I mean, unsurprisingly, how things are going to be moving forward in terms of preseason moving up until the first official game on, on October 4th against Barcelona is pretty unclear. And so we'll just, I'll just have to keep looking and asking people, which is essentially how I even found out that we'd be scheduling another game against Stepor. So that's that news. The second piece of news we have to talk about comes from David Manayo of Marca. And essentially, he has pointed out that from health regulation or health protocol, essentially published in order to govern the non-professional, quote-unquote, non-professional sports in Spain, which... Again, Primera Iberdrola falls under, even though the RFEF technically kind of designated them as professional. That was just symbolic. They haven't actually received a governmental license that recognized the league as professional and the players as professional. Right. So they fall under this particular regulation. And Manayo, having read through that, pointed out that there's actually no requirement for PCR testing for COVID-19. There's just a recommendation that leagues and players do it 72 hours in advance of games, in the hope that they be responsible or whatever, and PCR testing being um, so, basically like the nasal swabs and stuff where they detect the antigen. Right. And so it's so not just antibody testing, but essentially like pinpointing whether you have a live virus in you. And so, Gabe, can you let us know kind of like a little more about like what that means and like why yes. this is such a mess? Yeah, so the PCR test is a 
polymerase chain reaction test. Basically, you're looking at a DNA um, swab. So it's, as you said, um, it's correctly, um, it's very much targeted whether you have the actual virus inside of you. Because the way you check to see if you have a virus is by checking for the virus's DNA. Um, and there are other ways you can do it. Antibody testing basically tests, you know, whether you had the virus previously, which means whether you have uh, antibodies that also contain a small chunk of the virus's DNA. Uh, so anyways, the point is this. I think there are two things to talk about with respect to this. I think the bigger issue is that Iberdrola is not a professional league. It should be. This guidance makes sense if you're talking about the leagues that are like slightly above your beer league stuff. Like if you're talking about your uh, leagues that, you know, you have pretty good players, you have jerseys, maybe you even have a stadium uh, you're not really paid, but you're paid in like, you know, a small level, but you have other jobs, right? That is the type of non-professional league that we're talking about. And it makes sense to have, not to force those people to be taking PCR tests every, you know, every two, you know, every week or even every other day, right? That makes sense. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm apparently having some problems with my mic. Uh, but the point I think here is that the fact that these women, right, are being uh, forced into this uh, system that is not a system that makes sense for professionals is the real issue. Now, if we actually get into this document, the way that they're dealing with all of the problems, right, they, they give you a very strict set of hygiene uh, things that you're supposed to do, both before training, then during training, then during a match, that kind of stuff. They require masks. They require, sh- like, you know, not wearing the same shirt twice. They have to, you know, wash stuff between things. You have to wear your mask during uh, any time you're not running or on the field and all, all the stuff. So that makes sense and it's good. But if you're having a professional league, these people are going to be sharing the same dressing rooms. They're going to be sharing the same you know, all of these other things that are mixed in with the professional setting, right? They're training every day. I mean, these kind of non-professional beer leagues, they're not going to be training every day. So it makes sense to kind of require them to have personal hygiene at home and personal hygiene at the stadium. But these folks are going to be training every day together. So you need them to be taking COVID tests more than occasionally. They need to be taking them pretty regularly. Yeah, pretty much every time they come into training, which is what the Real Madrid men's team does, and which is why Odegaard, what turned out to be a false positive, like we got on that right after the game, right? Testing, false positive, all right, isolate Odegaard, see what it is. Okay, we figured out it's, it's a false positive, everything's good. The way they've phrased the language and the way they've made kind of like an appeal to like the self responsibility or whatever the players is like, you know, you guys are responsible, you handle it, which I guess is good to say. And honestly, like, I think most players will take it seriously, but that's just a deflection of responsibility of like the organizing right. structures and the people in power, right? Who are right. essentially exactly. saying like, it's all on you. Yeah. If you end up getting infected, that's your fault. Which again, it makes sense if you're talking about some sort of beer league, right? Where you're, you're not a professional player, but mm-hmm. if you're a professional player, you need to have an organizational structure that supports you and that so that you you aren't the person that has to deal with making sure that you don't have COVID. That's insanity if you're a professional. 
Uh, and my my guess, and I think we discussed it a little bit a little bit before we started recording, is that all of the big teams, all of the teams with uh, infrastructure that already exists for their men's players, are going to going to treat the women the same as the men, because in some cases they are literally going to overlap on the fields. So that is true for the big clubs. But then we also in this league have clubs that don't really have that infrastructure. And so you have to worry a little bit about whether they are going to be following this protocol. And because the protocol is not designed for professional teams, I think any time a Real Madrid, a Barcelona, Valencia, any team that has this infrastructure goes to these smaller teams, you're going to have to be worried about whether your players are going to be exposed. Right. Yeah. So let's go ahead, Grant. Yeah, I just think it's really weird that Primera Iberdrola doesn't want to require this kind of stuff, even as like their own league rules. Because the thing is, is if you have one person come out to the pitch that hasn't done something properly and you play a game, that's two teams that could potentially be infected. And who knows when they, if they play midweek or whatever, and it goes undetected and all of a sudden the league stopped, you know, like it seems like you, as someone who's, part of the leadership of this league would realize that you need these tests all the time to make sure that the league doesn't collapse in the blink of an eye. Grant, that's a really good point. And one of the things that that that's drawing on that you're, you're so correct about is that if Iberdrola would just look at the other women's leagues around the world, they would see that this is a huge problem in, in the women's soccer league in the United States. One of the teams got infected, the entire team, because a group of them went out drinking in Florida. And they had to drop out of the competition. They shut down everything. It's, it's an insane because they, you know, they got screwed over by this small group of players. But the league should know and should be able to, to – should, should have been, excuse me, on top of that. You know, and these people should have gotten tested immediately. But instead, it ruined their entire season. They dropped out of the league, all of this stuff. And you should be prepared for that kind of stuff if you're a real professional league. And it just feels like Iberdrola is not taking that aspect of this seriously. Yeah, so three points. One, Gabe makes the really important point about, like, professional versus non-professional. Even though the official designation of this league and players is non-professional, they live professional lives, right? Like their entire lives revolve around football. They they train professionally. They're, they're expected to eat and live in a professional manner so that everything is geared towards performance on a pitch. It's just that they're missing that kind of official licensing part of it. And so that's where it's kind of like my second point comes in where this directive essentially comes to the Ministry of Culture and Sport. And so there is leeway for Primera Iberdrola to come in, right, and say, okay, this is like the official governmental guidelines for non-professional sport. But we know that like looking at the actual character of our league, it's operated in a professional manner, right? So we can come in and add our own guidelines, right? Not contradicting what the government is saying, but just adding even more stringent things, which obviously like the government is not going to step in and say, oh, no, you can't be even more, right? Like, uh, you can't implement even more stringent measures in your own organization, right? Of course, you're not going to do that. But based on kind of what David Manaya was kind of saying in his tweet is RFEF has not has declined to do that, essentially, it's just kind of accepting that, okay, there's these basic guidelines from the government. And that's good enough. And which is stupid, right? Because as Gabe was saying, they might might officially be designated as unprofessional, non-professional, but this is in all but name a professional league 
with professional players, as Gabe said, who train regularly, who share the same dressing rooms, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm not so worried for, for Real Madrid. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure we will implement the same kind of procedures for our, for our women's players that we do with the men's players. But as Gabe was saying, what about the other teams that don't have the same level of infrastructure? So we were planning to do a preseason friendly with CD Santa Teresa, a newly promoted side from the second division, like a week, or, a week ago or a couple of weeks ago. And that fell apart because they couldn't control the situation like Real Madrid could. And there was you know, issues with COVID-19. And as far as I'm aware, none of the Real Madrid's women's players have been tested positive for COVID-19, at least recently. But several of the other La Liga or, or Primera Brasola teams have. And so that's the issue there, right? Because it's not, you know, Real Madrid Feminino can do whatever they want, but it's not just kind of like a one-sided thing. Everyone in, in the league has to kind of be at the same level when it comes to this. And the fact that it just appears like the RFEF is just like, all right, we'll just accept this recommendation for non-professional sports. And that's it is it's not just dumb. It's like, it's malpractice almost, right? Like yeah, it's almost like, negligent, right? Like it's, right. it's your look. I mean, like, and it's also like almost kind of, I don't want to say like nihilistic, but like you're going to destroy the league. Yeah. You're, I think it's, it's super it's like, dismissive of the league. Right. And you're going to have a team that has this happen to them. And if you're lucky, it won't infect another team and it will only cause that team to drop out. Right. But if you're unlucky, it could hit another team or even other teams after that and could shut down the entire league. It's an insane, it's an insane thing. And the Liga has to do something, has to step up as an organization to support the teams that don't already have the infrastructure to do this. Right. And so there's a, and there's also like a question of, because there supposedly has been, right, like on, on like the absolute highest level, FIFA has supposedly sent out money to provide testing and stuff like that and, and like kits and stuff like that. And to a certain extent, it seems like, you know, the Spanish sporting organizations at large have also gotten some funding. When I just look at the attitude of the RFEF throughout this kind of entire process of not just trying to control for COVID-19, but starting up the league itself, I'm skeptical to begin with, like how, what, there's no transparency, first of all, as to like where, where these funds are going, how they're going to be used and whether there will be adequate support for the teams. Because as I said, it's like the league or the sporting organizations at large are just passing the buck, right? Which is kind of what they've been doing since the beginning. The only reason the league start is going to start in October is because the players got together in a unified voice and said, enough is enough. You got to do something, right? Because we, this is, this is our livelihood we see it's possible, right? We see we can do it in a safe manner. We see it in multiple leagues. So so let's get it done. And so after that was done, the RFEF was like, okay, if you're going to make such a big deal about it, let's confirm the dates. And then <laughs> they're like, oh, okay, well, it's on you guys, right? You want it to play. So why don't you take care? We're recommending stuff. You just ensure that everything is okay. And like, it isn't easy, right? It is an infrastructure issue for a club like CD Santa Teresa that probably has like the budget of like half the wages of one men's player in Real Madrid's team to be able to set up, yeah, to set up, (laughs) to set up all this stuff and have like the, 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 the people power, first of all, to like organize logistics, all of that. If you just start getting into and thinking about what you have to do as an organization to ensure all this is possible, that's where our skeptic skepticism comes from in terms of like, this could be seriously bad for the league. And it, I mean, some, that's why you have an organization. That's why you have funds that can be distributed. And at the moment, it just seems like 
the only leadership that ever comes in Premier Iberdrola comes from the players themselves. And that's just not going to cut it for COVID-19, right? Like we, we need an organizing body to, to step in and take charge and ensure that their players can, are safe when playing, which is literally possibly their like only, you know, they only have two responsibilities, right? Ensure that the players can play and ensure that they can do it safely. And they weren't even willing to do the first one until the players stepped up. And it seems like they're not really willing to do the second one, which again, is like, is basically negligence. It's hard to imagine a more in like, I, I, I actually don't think this is incompetence or negligence. You know, you know, when we talk about negligence, what you mean is someone not acting in a way that a reasonable person in that situation would act. I'm not sure that that's what's going on. What I think is going on is a level of unwillingness on the institutional level to accept the idea that women are playing and that they are professional. And it's a baked-in level of sexism. That is my guess. Not, not that these people are just, you know, unwilling or, or accidentally doing this. I think this is a structural issue. I think it's intentional, um, or at the very least, uh, uh, at the very least, not will they're, they're unwilling to treat these women in the way that they would, would or should treat, um, similarly situated men. I mean, I think that's a hundred percent accurate because like that you have the protocol already in place for the men's side. It's like copy and paste. That's all you have to do. To like put that kind right. of stuff exactly. in, into the works, like you don't have to recreate it. Right, it's not yeah. complex. You don't have to worry <laughs> about that. Like, you, it's like we not only are we already doing it in Europe in soccer, right? Like they have like this similar idea all across the world. There, every league that has playing people are doing this. You don't have to worry about it. Just fucking do the same thing as everyone else. But there, for whatever reason, and you know, we've discussed the reasons. My obvious belief is that it's because Spain specifically does not want this to happen. But you know, they're not doing it, so it's it's pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah, from a blueprint perspective, it's not complicated at all. What's difficult is resource-wise, infrastructure-wise, which is again why you have an organization step in and help out in the way you can. Like that's again literally the purpose of an organization. But to Gabe's earlier point, I think it's 100% correct that this is about just a lack of basic respect for the idea of women playing professional sports. Like, there's no other reason for it, right? Like, it's just this – and, it, again, it's like a repeated pattern throughout, which is this – Right, because if what we're talking about is a money-making venture, which on some level – every sport in the world is, even if they're pretending that they're not like in the U S with, with all of these cartel organizations that aren't taxed, right? Even if they're pretending that they're not, they are a money-making venture. So what they're doing by doing this is kneecapping themselves and making themselves unable to make money on the long term. And the mm-hmm. only way to explain something like that in my view is if there's some sort of outside force that's forcing and, and weighing on these people and convincing them that, it's it's not worth even trying to make money. And for me, it's pretty clear that the reason that is, is, is sexism. Right. It's, it's a fundamental kind of dismissal of just the fact that women can play professional sports and they can do it in a manner that requires a level of seriousness from an institutional level. And right. I think Gabe, you're absolutely correct. I don't think you can really point it to anything other than sexism and it really shows up, right? I mean, it's shown up before when there weren't like these, 
you know, insane global challenges to deal with. But when you have this, like the first roadblock comes up and they're like, all right, that's it. League's over. Oh, other right. leagues are starting up. Guess what? We're not going to do that. Barcelona title. And are we even going to play the 2021 season? Well, I guess not until the players say that we are. And then it's, it's like, again, this is, this is like, this is kind of the, the thing again, that women constantly have to fight in professional sport. It's like literally having to prove every single time that them playing a sport in a professional capacity is worth it and not just worth like attention or lots of money, but worth basic respect from the people whose very right. jobs it is, it is to like, not just afford them respect, but afford them like high quality, safe spaces to play and, and engage in competition and sport. Or let anyone watch them play. I mean, for the love <laughs> of God, we are, every week we're talking about how we're unable to watch these women play soccer. That's an insane thing from, from if like, again, just going back to the basic money-making idea, it's, it's insane to prevent us from watching these sports. Like they put up these huge barriers for these women to break through even, and like, even though those barriers don't make sense in a, in a basic kind of capitalistic sense, like it's insanity. Right. And then they'll wheel back to justification. Well, it, it doesn't produce money, right? Because you're not investing even like the basic amount to allow, you know, a basic business to make money. But yeah, that's kind of where we're at right now in terms of like trying to keep track of what Primera Iberdrola is going to look like when it starts up in October. And in terms of the COVID-19 factor, it doesn't look super promising. There's obviously still time for Primera Iberdrola to kind of step in and put in, you know, not just recommendations, but basically conditionals that say if club doesn't do A, B, C, D, they can't play. And beyond that, because that's the easiest part, actually offering the resources to the really small clubs like CD Santa Teresa. So they have the capability and capacity to actually meet those conditionals. And so if that ends up happening, I can guarantee you it's going to come from the players themselves uh, kind of having to band together again. But at the moment, it kind of looks like we're in a pretty risky space right now where the league and everyone involved just looks willing to kind of put it all in the hands of the clubs and players to say, if you want to test, we recommend you do it 72 hours before a game. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're adults and we expect you to do it. So that was kind of our summary of that situation, which I thought was really important to talk about. And thank Grant for putting that in our WhatsApp group today. So yeah, we, could, we could touch upon that. So I think now we can get to the international games. We had two, as we mentioned, Spain destroyed Moldova 9-0 and Sweden drew with Iceland 1-1 so kind of like uh two very different games one's like a really elite international side destroying an absolute minnow and the other was two international sides of relatively equal quality going up against each other in like actually what was a high stakes game in terms of Euro qualifying but let's start with Spain's 9-0 win because that was the game that occurred earlier. And Grant, you were the one who wrote the match report on this game. You watched it more extensively than I did. So kind of take us away on that. What happened? What were you impressed with? And, you know, what what did this tell you about Marta Corredera, who was kind of the primary rounded player who got time in this game? Yeah, so like I did last week with the Sweden game, I just want to add a little context. Um Spain last played in the She Believes Cup in March, where they got to play top competition like England, the U.S., and Japan. And Moldova last played one game in March 
against Poland. And then their last game before that was against Azerbaijan in 2019. So, like, the level of preparedness had already tilted in the favor of Spain, let alone, you know, the 11 players on the pitch. And Marta Corredera was the only person who started that was a Real Madrid Femenino player. Ivana Andres, Marta Cordona, who would come off the bench, and Teresa all started on the bench. Spain really kind of started with this really high pressure, and it didn't really stop until the game was pretty much over. The wingbacks got forward. They basically left two center backs back, and everybody else was in the attack. And, like, people often say that, but, like, you look at Corradera, and she actually attempted the most passes with 90 out of the entire team. And then Spain also had this attacking line of four, sometimes five, depending on Hermoso, who was kind of in this free role. And one of these attackers would kind of pop into the midfield, receive the ball, then turn and look to play another in because Moldova was trying to be organized and compact because from the onset, like you could tell that this was going to be, let's try and keep the score down, which obviously didn't work. But the wingers and wingbacks looked super confident. They were taking on defenders and beating them almost every time. Moldova barely touched the ball. Spain had 72% possession. And I mean, defensively, um, Spain's pressure just suffocated Moldova. They, you could have counted on your hand how many times Moldova actually possessed it in the attacking half. They turned the ball over immediately. Spain was pressing in this kind of two, four, three-ish kind of formation way up the pitch. And the people in the midfield were just jumping the passing lanes. And Moldova really resorted to just kind of hitting and hoping. And there was no one up top to get the ball because everyone was back trying to defend. So there are a couple standouts, obviously Corradera, who I'll get to um, after I glance over some of the other good performances. Alba Redondo was super, super good. She looked dangerous. Her and Corradera linked up really well on that, on that flank. She ended up with a goal and two assists and won the penalty for the ninth goal. Lucia Garcia had two goals. Uabi, who is the other wingback, looked very good with two assists and was just carving through people. And then Mariona had a hat trick, penalty, tap in, and a really good curler towards the end of the match. Corradera was was really, really good. I mean, granted, she did not have to defend like at all. She was basically a midfielder slash attacker in this game, but she was involved in four goals pretty much from what I could tell Cordera had a throw in to Redondo and Redondo just like absolutely sauced two defenders squared it to Lucia Garcia for the first goal. Then second goal, Cordera crossed the Puteas who pokes it in 2-0. And then Cordera for the third goal, chipped a ball into Redondo who assists Mariona for the third. And then the fourth goal and final one that she kind of helped with, it was Cordera in space and time on the wing and just delivered an inch perfect cross to Jenny Hermoso for, uh, for the 4-0, which was not even all the scoring that happened in the first half. But good overall, didn't have to defend much. And her and Alba Redondo on that one side were were devastating. She, good dribbling sequences, good range of passing, all of that. And then we have um, Marta Cardona, who got subbed in for a little less than a half hour. She looked pretty good, but at that point, there was just like an overall lack of urgency because they were up, I think, 7-0 when she came on. She she tried to make some things happen. She immediately came on and started taking on defenders. She looked good, but, I mean, you can't really take too much from the performance just because of the scoreline and 
kind of the level of the competition that she was coming on to face. Um, Om, do you have any other points about the game from what you saw? It is valid to point out, right, like that this competition isn't great, but this is kind of like, in terms of Corvera's performance, it is concurrent with the way she has played in the past in the sense that she's a very offensive fullback. Sometimes she's classified as a wingback. She has gotten time out on the wing. In fact, Grant, you and I were discussing before the game that some people on Twitter were saying that they thought the formation would have her playing out on the right wing, um, which is not to say that's her best position, but she's just a very offensive player. She likes to influence the game from that position. And so in that sense, we got a very probably the best idea of what she could look like and kind of like playing the most offensive role a right back could play. And I just think her having a good game, her getting into rhythm is really good news for Real Madrid Feminino going forward because it was kind of an underrated story of Takan last season because there were other things to worry worry about, specifically the center backs, maybe some tactical issues that I've talked about before, but our fullbacks weren't exactly great, right? Like they, they were, they almost kind of typified, I think, kind of the old notion of what fullbacks are, of what, of what fullbacks used to be, which is that they're players who wanted to be wingers, but couldn't, but, or, or wanted to be center backs, but, but couldn't, as Jamie Carragher, like once choked and kind of teased Gary Neville with, in a sense that they were like serviceable players who were okay on the ball, okay defensively, but they weren't great points of influence, which is not what a, a competing club in the modern game wants, right? We want a Marcelo, we want a Carvajal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we essentially upgraded the right back position about as well as I think any other team in the league did. And the interesting thing is that Marta Cordera, for as good as she is, might not even be our starting right back, right? Because Kenty Robles signed from Atletico Madrid on a free transfer is probably going to start over her. I don't know whether you agree with that or not, Grant, but I'm just going by, I think, her fact that she's like, played such an established level with Atletico Madrid. Obviously she's, she's in her prime. I think she's 29 years old and she, she's a high quality player who I think is kind of set to get, take the right back position for the next couple of seasons, which is super exciting for us because Cordero is probably a starting quality right back for most other teams. And so to see her play well and just kind of get a, a live glimpse of the type of influence she can have in the final third was nice to see. And, you know, it's good signs going forward for Real Madrid Feminino and to know that that right back slot is a lot better than it was last season. And it should be interesting to see, you know, all the link up that happens on that side going forward. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm not 100% sure about, you know, who's going to start for Osnar when the season rolls around. But if you have two players of that quality pushing each other, it can only be good for the team. And to that to that point you made about, wingbacks being influential I think what really demonstrates that for Spain is that um, she was wearing the number seven as a right back that's not something you see that often and I mean she had the most attempted passes in the game so it clearly is not just her picking a number like she's there to be an influential force in that attack the number seven always means something it doesn't matter what team it is if you have the number seven on that's the signifier of some type of offensive influence you have on the side, right? And so, yeah, that's that's a pretty good point. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say was just that was the positive. The terrifying aspect of that game was seeing Jennifer Hermoso go off again and just who obviously is a Barcelona player and was a top goal scorer in the league last season is just she plays from nominal midfield position for Barcelona, 
but her ability to sniff out spaces in the box and her clinicality in the air is is really something. And yeah, it was great to see Corradera play well. It was great to see uh, Marta Cardona get some time. But watching Jennifer Hermoso just absolutely destroy Moldova and basically exploit whatever weakness you could, which there were a lot of weaknesses, but if you're talking about expectations, the highest expectation you can have in that game is to win the game 9-0, 10-0 with someone like Hermoso scoring that many goals or having the kind of influence that she did because uh, Mariona, I think, was a top goal scorer. But yeah, watching Hermoso just kind of like play her pseudo central midfield slash like attacking midfield slash shadow striker role just kind of brought back memories of like us talking about Barcelona on the earlier podcast and kind of reviewing them and like me dreading a little bit having to face Barcelona on the first game of the season, you know, as, as excited as I am that it's coming back, it it didn't have to be Barcelona as the first game, in my opinion, and it doesn't have to be against Jenny Hermoso, but I guess it is. And well, you know, maybe Marta Cordera has some like secrets or something she can pass on to the coaching staff and teammates as to how we can slow her down because she was pretty terrifying that game. Yeah, she, she was terrifying, but what baffled me is that she took almost all of the set pieces. Like, she's yeah. so good in the air. I don't know why, like, Corradero wasn't taking the set pieces or somebody else because you think, like, they scored nine, but if Jenny Hermosa was in the box for all of those set pieces, you'd probably mm-hmm. get a couple more. How many goals did she score in the game again? I think she only scored the one header. Okay, the one header. Um, but she won a ton of aerial duels, right? Because that's what's sticking out in my mind. Right. Yeah, so this game was September 19th. That was like six days ago. So my memory on that is a little rough. But I think we we covered that about as well as we could have. Gabe, I think, had to drop off because, I I mean, I don't know how it's going to turn out when I end up, like, uh, downloading this and, like, kind of editing it. But it seemed like Gabe was having some mic issues. And then he said he had to drop off because of internet issues. Don't know if he's going to pop on pop back on but if if that was it thank you Gabe especially for the uh insight on kind of like the COVID-19 regulations just before we move on um I want to toss out there that Spain is tied on points with the Czech Republic but do have a game in hand and the next international break they'll play the Czech Republic on October 23rd Moldova again sadly for them on November 27th and then Poland December 1st so, um, you know, Spain really needs to beat the Czech Republic, and they're probably pretty solid in that number one spot because in these groups, only the first place team of the group automatically qualifies, and one uh, or a couple of the second place teams do, and it's looking really tight. So these aren't just, you know, kick arounds. They they are qualification, and I took a look at the groups, and they're really tight. So both Spain and Sweden are going to have to be calling up, you know, their star studded players so that they can get wins, especially Sweden when we talk about them later. Yeah. So as Grant pointed out, these are not friendlies. These are all qualifying matches. They're of great significance. And this was a pretty big one. Uh, Sweden versus Iceland. They were two teams that were at the top of group F um, tied on points Sweden a bit ahead on goal difference, but obviously from Sweden's perspective, you want to get that win over a direct rival for the top spots. You can create some real separation because you don't know what happens moving forward. Right. And you know, the goal difference could easily change. 
unfortunately, it was a 1-1 draw, and I have to say that I was quite impressed with Iceland's defensive execution in terms of their scheme and their overall structure. The defending in the box wasn't that good, and if it had been better, I think they might have come away with the win. But you know, given how Sweden played last game, and we saw just how well Aslani uh, was able to influence proceedings between the lines, how dangerous she can be, it's pretty obvious that Iceland either scouted that game or they were previously aware because we know how, how Sweden plays, right? And so Sweden came out with the usual 4-2-3-1. Aslani, kind of the number 10 shadow striker, Jakobsen out on the right wing, Arnvigard, playing striker Hurtig out on the left. So pretty much their kind of classic strong 11 because this is probably their most significant game that they had played up until this point in Euro qualifying. And Iceland countered that with the sort of 4-4-2 shape that receded into this kind of interesting 4-4-1-1 whenever their forward lines got bypassed. So they, they pressed out of this shape actually quite aggressively, especially on goal kicks, just kind of in how you'd press in a traditional 4-4-2. Because it's a 4-2-3-1 from Sweden, you don't really have to do many manipulations, right, to kind of try to match up in midfield because, like, the the deeper structure, you just match up player to player. And so that's what... Iceland did. And honestly, the first 15 to 20 minutes, Sweden looked rather uncomfortable trying to build out from the back, like lots of passes down the line as kind of a last resort, little chip balls over the top that made it a little more chaotic, made it more 50-50, fights for second balls that really suited Iceland because you really never want to give Sweden a chance to play the ball on the ground, play through you and attack you in transition by getting like Aslani involved who can choose to dribble. She can choose to play a through ball or play it out wide to someone like Jakobsen, who's always making a run out wide. So that was kind of their initial strategy. And then what I was talking about with the changing to a 4-4-1-1 is when their forward lines got bypassed, really quick to reorganize themselves um, because they don't want to be caught out in semi-transition because that's where Aslani is most dangerous and Jakobsen is most dangerous. So they recede into that. And in order to kind of really congest that central area because Sweden really what they want to do is like shift the defense around, play that vertical pass in. Aslani's in that position and that's that's where like you've collapsed the defense, right? Because they need to like swarm around you and stop that critical player between the lines. And so to even prevent that pass from happening in the first place, because he that's just always an awkward situation for to defend from, one of the forward players, depending on where the ball was, would kind of sort of drop out of that like front two that you usually see in a defensive 4-4-2 shape and either like do some deeper pressing or almost kind of recede into the midfield line a little bit, just always looking to kind of shut off some passing lanes. So it was like an asymmetric 4-5-1 almost. And so that made it, I think, a lot more difficult in this game for Aslani to have the kind of influence that she did versus Hungary, where, again, she was on fire. And the, I guess, the weakness, you could say, to this Iceland scheme, which is one they were willing to accept, right? Because there's always trade-offs in sports when when you're thinking about things tactically. It's just about which trade-off you think is less risky. Trade-off here is that the wide areas were open. Because, again, like, Sweden 
they accepted moving the ball into wide areas, but it's not like their structure accepted it, right? Aslani stayed between the lines. They had Envergaard, like, maybe kind of willing to drop off and stuff like that. Hurtig coming in from the left in the half space. So constantly threatening that area. And so when you combine that offensive shape with defensive shape, it was just, like, kind of the perfect conditions to compress those defensive lines into central areas and have relatively free passes out wide. So you've got Jakobsen in one versus one situations. You got the left fullback from Sweden, Anderson, in in those positions. And there were a lot of crosses into the box because that was just kind of the avenue that Iceland was willing to concede. And I have to say the crosses weren't that great. Pretty much every single time Iceland managed to get ahead or a foot to it. But this is where I criticized their box defending. Almost all of their clearances were horrible, like extremely bad. Like, you do all that good work, like, the team organization, the team ethic, the work rate up until that point is good, the tactics are good, and you just almost blow it all up every single time by being unable to clear the ball. And there were numerous times, basically, like, I'd say half of Sweden shots ended up coming from second balls in the box, failed clearances, and a Sweden player kind of coming with momentum, coming to the ball and, like, smashing it towards goal. And it wasn't like exactly that type of situation they scored, but it is sort of like indicative of how Sweden ended up taking the lead, which came in the 33rd minute where Jakobsen, who who had a dynamic that was more suited to her than Aslani because the ball was constantly going into wide areas. She receives the ball on the touchline. She dribbles inside, kind of this inside-out dribbling move. She nutmegs the defender and... The defender actually does really well to recover after this beautiful move by Jakobsen, and the initial cross is blocked. But after that, like Jakobsen has all the time in the world to kind of pick up the loose ball, pick her head up, and play a much more accurate dinked cross back into the area that Anvagard converts. And it's like, if you actually look at the whole sequence, there were two players on Jakobsen. But after the cross was blocked, it was like everyone fell asleep, and they're like, well... Why don't you just have another go? Let's give you another chance. And once that happened, her second cross was accurate and Sweden took the lead. And so after that, going into the tunnel, it looked like I think Sweden had taken control. They were playing around the press better. Again, this is very good ball playing side. They're it's not like they're not they're they're not used to playing against pressing, right? They're they're expecting all sorts of defensive structures to kind of mess up their flowing passing game. So they were looking fairly strong without creating that much going into the half. Second half, oh, I thought I... Before we get into the second half, did you think that that Iceland goal should have been disallowed? It was that header from Gunna's daughter was around the goalkeeper, and I think they called a foul on the goalkeeper, but oh, I that think one. That, that Sweden was a bit lucky to go in 1-0 up. All I right. think they, I, they outplayed them in the first half and had a lot more like half chances, and obviously Amagard converted. But I think that that Gunner's daughter goal should have possibly counted. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. So thank you for stopping me in my tracks for that because I, I knew there was something, but I was like, all right, I, I glanced through my notes. I don't see it, but I actually did write it down. So in the... This Yeah, this was the first half. So they had a corner kick goal ruled out, and they ruled it out, as you said, for a foul on the goalkeeper that I watched multiple replays. I don't know how many you saw, Grant, but I saw like four or five. I wasn't really able to identify what the foul was. Obviously, 
I couldn't understand what the commentators were saying because they were speaking in Swedish. So I don't know if they were pointing out that there was something else that was the foul. Right. But from all of the replays, it, they kept zooming in on like some action with the goalkeeper and I just couldn't see a foul. Oh, so, no. And that Iceland coach was pissed, man. I mean, like, <laughs> he was, this is such a big game and he was about to go off. <laughs> you could hear him yelling. Like, it was that, that, that's what I like about the no fake crowd noise. Like, I, again, I can't understand. Uh, I, I couldn't really, was he speaking English? I can't remember, but like, I, ac- I don't think so. His but. accent or like, you know, if he was speaking like a different language or whatever, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but like, you don't, the beauty of curse words <laughs> is that you don't really need to understand exactly what they are to know that they're curse words. And like, if he had gone, I think a little, a little more aggressively, I think he would have been sent off like straight red card to the face because he was not happy. And I think honestly he had a right to be so glad Grant brought that up because Iceland, as I'll talk about, they, they had a decent offensive plan, but it just came to greater fruition in the second half. And I feel like Sweden kind of dealing with the pressing kind of like overshadowed kind of what they were doing with their offensive strategy because Sweden started to look better on the ball after they scored. But I mean, they weren't, they were not going to be denied. And so in the second half, Iceland do get that equalizer. But just to quickly remark on their offensive game, I was impressed with how they were able to maintain actual continuous possession spells in Sweden's half. That's not a common thing against one, a side that likes to dominate the ball, but also a side that, as Grant and I talked about last podcast, likes to press and likes to counter-press very aggressively. And it wasn't like Iceland was playing the same way as Sweden. They were they were playing how you think a more direct team would play, like passes into the channel and stuff like that. But it came with a purpose. It came with support. So you had center backs kind of taking their time on the ball to get it into a good position for the fullback or central midfielder who could then turn, look up, have time to play that pass down the line where you had like one player running to get that ball and a second player ready to offer support. So that was how they entered the final third. And then when they were there, patience to essentially try, if if they couldn't get off the immediate cross, okay, how do we work the ball into wide positions again, get someone free down the, the wide area and put crosses into the box. And Jensen who was listed as the center forward for this game for Iceland, I thought was pretty spectacular. And it's notable that this is not something surprising for a team that basically defends exclusively through pressing, that once Jensen and other players from Iceland got a chance to run directly at the Swedish defense, they looked super uncomfortable. Jensen had at least like two really good dribbling sequences where she just went by three or four players and caused a lot of trouble for the Swedish defense. And they honestly could have conceded in those moments. So that was kind of like the comeback aspect of what Iceland were doing in the second half. But they eventually ended up equalizing, not through open play, not through one of Jensen's dribbling sequences, but just through a very long throw-in attempt. And I have to say, because I critiqued, Iceland's box defending I have to critique Sweden's box defending again like again kind of characteristic I think of a team that mainly defends exclusively through high pressing like it was terrible like I don't know what else to say like the long throw-in was good it had power on it it was clearly intended to come to a particular player and about three Sweden Swedish players in the box just ended up missing the delivery completely and Iceland 
converted. So, and I think it was Jensen who actually scored. So she ended up getting a reward. Yeah, I think I said earlier they didn't score through Jensen. That was incorrect. What I meant to say is they didn't score through dribbling sequences. She did end up getting the goal anyway. Kind of not off what she was, like her her role of the team was, but she ended up scoring anyway. So it was kind of like poetic justice in that sense that she was ended up being rewarded for her great overall play throughout the game. And I would say she was probably player of the match. And so that occurred in the 61st minute. And it was just kind of the similar dynamic for the rest of the game with Sweden trying to break down pressing, doing it a little more successfully once they got into Iceland's half, playing it out wide and pumping balls into the box because they really couldn't find Aslani. Aside from some semi-transition counterattack moments where she did have some opportunities to be influential. And then Iceland, again, countering with balls in the channels, solid defending outside from their box, defending, and it ended 1-1. And I don't know if either team will be happy with that result because, as Grant said, the coach was furious that their initial goal was taken away. And if you take that into account, Iceland would have won 2-1. And I'm sure Sweden are not happy because these are teams of relatively equal qualities, but Sweden is still the better side. They're higher up in the official rankings they have the better personnel. I don't think they're going to be particularly happy that they weren't able to decisively pull clear at the top of the table. And now Sweden and Iceland are equal on 13 points. And again, like they're, they're probably not going to be happy with that. This was a huge chance for them. But from my personal perspective, who doesn't really care about, you know, like where Sweden and Iceland are going to end up. I just care about the rounded players. It was good to see Jakobsen have a much better game after what I thought was more of a mixed performance, if I don't want to say poor versus hungry in this one, a lot more active, a lot more involved, but more importantly, less sloppier with their touches. And again, she did end up making the decisive contribution that ensured that Sweden ended up getting one point from this. Again, that beautiful nutmeg. And after her cross is blocked, having the presence of mind to reset herself, put in another delivery that Anvagard was able to convert. So that was a great performance from her. Aslani, not as amazing as last time, but I thought she was solid given kind of like the defensive structures that were basically designed almost exclusively to suppress her. She still showed decent link-up play and transition. She was good, you know, more of an average performance, but that's why it's a team sport again, right? You just don't rely on one player every time. And in this occasion, Jakobsen stepped up and I was really looking to her to kind of respond after what wasn't the greatest performance versus Hungary and she did. So from the realm of the defending perspective, I was relatively pleased that both Jakobsen and Aslani have one game, one competitive game going into the real season that they can look to that's given them momentum and has given them kind of like a feel for, for their own game and for their roles that will, I'm hoping are pretty much exactly replicated in David Osnar's system. Yeah, I completely agree. And just to go back to that thing that you said about the fact that they're tied on 13 points, Sweden and Iceland both have three games left. Sweden will play Latvia on October 22nd, Slovakia on December 1st. And mark your calendars, get out your Apple apps, put in a notification, whatever. October 27th, we've got a rematch of Sweden and Iceland, and it's going to be a blockbuster. I mean, I don't know how you felt, Om, but I kind of felt like this, the tactical high paces of this, of this match kind of felt like a UCL knockout tie. And I mean, the stakes have just gotten so much higher with this being, you know, basically whoever wins this game will probably get the automatic qualification to um, the Euros in first place. So 
I'm excited for that game on October 27th, and I'm sure we'll talk about it here um, when it happens. Yeah, it wasn't usually tactical for an international game. Um, yeah, for I, sure. To, to be honest, right, the Spain game uh, versus Moldova, Sweden versus Hungary, it wasn't that great, right? Like, of course, we, we saw them score a bunch of goals. Aslani played well, Cordero played well, but it's not like I'm scratching my head wondering how exactly did they pull that off? I know exa- how exactly they pulled that off. They had way better players. This one was actually like I felt scheme was coming into play. And it was having certain mitigating factors. It was making up for certain talent deficiencies. And that's, again, that's not something you see on the international stage as much because it just tends to be simpler given to the natural constrictions of what international football means in terms of preparation time, et cetera, et cetera. Given what we saw in this game, given that both sides are probably unhappy with the result, one side probably feels really aggrieved by a poor refereeing decision. The other feels like we're the best team in this group. We should be on top of it, no question. I think there's going to be extra fire in in their next encounter. And there's probably going to be some tactical counters as well, right? Sweden's going to look at what happened in terms of trying to shut off Aslani. And they're like, well, either how do we free her up, get her into better space, or how do we take greater advantage of the fact that Iceland don't defend well when, when balls are put into the box? And then Iceland will simply look at, well, hey, when we actually tried to play the ball on the ground and have a little bit of patience, Sweden's like central defense looked really, really weak. And someone like Jensen should just could just dribble through them. Like, how do we exploit that more last time? Like there's lots of, I think, intriguing tactical storylines going into that game. So I'm actually more excited to watch that one than I was like going into this one, no, even knowing that like, Oh, Hey, Iceland's actually a good opponent. This is going to be a challenge for Sweden. Like that's, that's what I'm pinning on my calendar because I think it's going to be even better than, than the game we watched on September 22nd. Yeah, and hopefully my VPN and SVTV will work. If not, please send a YouTube link or something. We try and share the uh, the links on the social media, but we, we appreciate any help. If you guys have links as well, tweet them out there. We'll retweet them so that everybody can have access to the matches if, uh, if we can. Right, and again... You know, obviously, I'd love I love to have other people to talk with this game about, but if Grant can't catch all of it again, I'm there for him, and as, he, as he's there for me, I think that's pretty much it, right? We've covered everything we've wanted to cover in terms of news, in terms of international results. Grant, you have any other final kind of parting thoughts? No, I'm excited to get the season underway, but other than that, we're good. Excited to get it underway in the hope that somehow COVID-19 and the stupid regulations don't bring it all down. Basically, aside from that kind of hanging over our heads, can't wait to actually see the girls in action and all of these new signings, nine signings now that we have, which we've covered all of them in some way, shape or form. The previous podcast, I think in our very first podcast, we covered our first eight signings. And then in the last one, we covered a pretty, solid scouting report on Claudia Florentino, which also covered the international game, Sweden versus Hungary. So check that out again, share all that, all that good stuff, get it out there, get people talking about the team, get people following. This is a great point to jump on as we're jumping on kind of like just diving into all this information ourselves and learning about it from a relatively kind of like beginner situation, but we're picking up pace quickly trying to read all these regulations and, and do all of that as we move on, give you all the information that we can. This is meant to be the central hub of Rounder, Femino, and Premier Verdola News. So do whatever you have to do. Download whatever apps 
make sure this is one of the podcasts that you're always listening to every single week. And we will do our best to give you all the necessary information that you need to have in as understandable a manner as possible for anyone who's not super familiar with this stuff. And so, yeah, that's our commitment to you. And on that note, Grant, thanks for coming on, man. Gabe, who had to drop off due to internet issues. Also, thanks for joining us for the first half. And I'll Madrid. I'll Madrid. in months um it's already a better year for us boys i'm joined by the gang chris and ruben uh there's already more to talk about this year than there was throughout the whole of last year because there has been a debut make that two um for the first team from castilla um all of last season i think towards the end for castilla corner we were looking at um javier hernandez coming on from the bench and it looked like that might break the chain but nobody in the end got that opportunity and it just looked like a dead end and I couldn't see where it was coming from next. Uh, last weekend Marvin Park and Sergio Arribas both came off the bench against Real Sociedad, quite a big game away to start the season. Couldn't come up with the goods, the team drew nil-nil but what were your thoughts boys? Uh, first I actually didn't think about that, the the streak has ended, I didn't mm, think about that important. because... Uh, uh, it has been quite a while since it last happened. I don't know when where, when was the last time. I don't know. But, um, maybe a cup game from two seasons ago, maybe. Yeah, so that's mm. quite a lot. It's probably, like, probably one of Solari's boys, Sanchez or yeah. mm. one of those. Yeah. Oof, and that feels yeah, I imagine like so. Yeah, so long ago. But uh, I loved it. Another thing is um, uh, I was surprised that this wasn't, you know, not, not the first time in the history, but Arribas made his debut for the first team before Castilla. Yeah. It's, I thought that was incredibly rare, Silly. but that happened just like a few years ago, apparently. Well, I mean, so. it was about eight to ten years ago, and it was a, a goalkeeper Pacheco. for an... Well, it must have been an injury, Pacheco. surely. Must yeah. have been. In 2011. Mm. And uh, in the cup. So when it happened in the league last, as anyone's guess. God. There's one. You you went, you went. spent months searching for the last pair to score. Last midfielder oh, to score. Oh, don't get so me on these There's your next, <laughs> last, there's your next <laughs> they one. They take so long. That is amazing, though. But Scrolling what? Through Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find it for sure. Marvin came on, and he is a Castilla corner favorite. I don't know if we've um, been overhyped as a gang, as a trio this week, because we got a lot of praise for <laughs> <laughs> for liking Marvin, and we we love Marvin. He impressed all of us time and time again. The consistency is pretty high. Matt, Matt Wilson, yeah. Shout out for you know he noticed. <laughs> we've been talking about this for. For many months, I think, mm. just that Marvin Park, should, yeah, Marvin mm. Park should be a player that Zidane likes, and he apparently does like Marvin. So Marvin, too, we can talk about uh, Arribas getting his debut before Castilla debut, but Marvin was not really a clear starter for Castilla either. So um, him getting uh, his debut, uh, and, and another thing, you know, many weird things about this is he was... Um, important league game and we were struggling we didn't you know we weren't winning 
So it wasn't like he threw out them on just no. because we were 5 nil up. We were actually mm-hmm. trying to win to get the, the winner. So uh, just many, many surprising things here. Mm. And uh, well, surprising in a good way. Yeah. Mm. Marvin, Marvin's like ascent to the first team is quite interesting because you look at like, I mean, he had a period at Castillo where he was starting. And then I think Renier came in or something like that. And he kind of was forced out of the first team as a yeah. result of that. But like, I think probably the most significant thing for Mar to happen to Marvin in this kind of run to have gotten him into that uh, onto the pitch in the Anoeta was Jordy's red card in UEFA Youth League because mm, if that did, if yeah. that didn't happen, you know Marvin doesn't get on the pitch and perhaps he doesn't play because he was a starter from then on and yeah. he played all the games. Yeah, that's and, a very good point. So like. So it's kind of crazy. That's all it took. I know. Small margins in football. And, yeah, um, really. Yeah. And, and, you know, we always talk about, you know, when people ask who's going to be promoted, and it's just not that easy of an answer. There's your mm. prime example. It took a red card in the 10th minute of the UEFA League to game to get Marvin into the on the radar, so to speak. Mm. But, I mean, once he was on that radar and now he's there, I don't think there's any doubt that Marvin, this isn't the last Thanks we've seen of him. Mm. Because I just think it's such an obvious match. Um. <laughs> Talking of the fine margins, though, the chance fell to him quite early doors. I'm guessing. We yeah. Were <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they ended up getting quite a bit of hate after this game because I mean, it's not their fault. I mean, because obviously Real Madrid didn't take the points home. Um, jo- Luka Jovic was left on the bench um, and Zidane turned to two Castilla players who I imagine most people have never heard of before. Um, yeah. And they, they came on and I'm going to be honest, Marvin didn't really do that well. It, it is what it is. Um I didn't. Sergio Ribas obviously came on in the 90th minute, and then that that attracted quite a bit of, I think, anger at uh, how they played and the fact that they, well, a lot of people think they shouldn't have played in the first place. But if that chance goes in, then the tables yeah. turn. Everyone's thinking Zidane, you, you're a genius. What a player Marvin is. Give more <laughs> you young players yeah. chances. Remember when? Remember when <laughs> Sanchez made his debut in, mm. like, against Mejia, and he was the next Sergio Ramos. Until that, yeah. yeah, until that mm. Moscow game where they lose three 0 and 100%. we never saw sight nor light of him again. It's so silly. Um, but but um, Arribas, I, I'll just look back now to see our bench. It seems like did Arribas come on in the 91st minute? It was very yeah. late then. But late. while Marvin played, and that's another Long time, thing. Isn't it? That's another thing. Marvin played from the 70th minute. It wasn't like the 89th. He played for 20 mm-hmm. minutes plus injury time. So, oof. And um, we also, because I was looking, who did we, who did he not put on, you know, of attacking options? <laughs> he did not put on Marcelo. He did mm. not put on uh, Mayoral, who has returned. He did not put on Luka Jovic. So these are good players. I mean, and yeah. he he chose Marvin, chose Arribas, and uh, I mean that's a, it's a very good sign. But I'm I'm not sure if do you think that, first of all do, did you expect if you were predicting any Castilla players to get the chance? I mean, did you predict those two? <sighs> that's a great Arribas probably. Do you think? Yeah, probably. I I think Arribas was definitely. Mm. In the top, I just think because of how much he impressed. You are the most right. answer this. He's the academy chief. I guess me and you probably haven't seen much of him throughout. Yeah, but you know, time. they were they were. I would have guessed that one of the clear stars. Yeah, I think was, yeah, last season. Yeah, I'm, I think in the last couple of months, if you were to put your hat on it, the kind of three names that come up would have been Hernandez, <laughs> Gutierrez, and Blanco. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, Marvin wasn't. I mean, we've we've earmarked Marvin, but I mean yeah. that was always just the case of. Zidane and Marvin were a good match, not necessarily because we thought there was any 
actual chance of Marvin getting a day. I mean, he, and he, he was kind of the, that was the first one. That he was mm. the first one. Yeah. The minutes that he did is, uh, I don't know, must speak to something. Certainly speaks to Zidane's strange taste in players, anyways. I imagine he must have been pre- It can't have come from nothing. He must have been called up to training and, oh, and yeah. Yeah. Look, he was nervous. The only reason I didn't like his performance because you could see that he was shivering yeah. the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, otherwise, he would have buried that. He's a much calm, cooler player than what he showed. Well, but he made his Real Madrid debut. Yeah. Of course, he's got to be. In a fairness to him, I don't think I've ever associated Marvin with a scoring touch. Mm. No. Uh, no. Uh, I always associate, but... He's always been a, a kind of a energetic player that can create chances. Mm. I've, no, I mean, right. we 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 made the we've made the um, comparison to Lucas Vasquez on more than one occasion. Yeah. There's a reason, but he's a more elect, energetic and younger Lucas Vasquez. Mm. Yeah, and Vasquez, I would also say, doesn't have much of a scoring touch. Yeah. <laughs> so Blanco did not get even called up, which I think was a little bit of a surprise because uh, he's been, you know, there's been talk of him being Casemiro's substitute this season, uh, his backup. And, uh, well, I know, Chris, you've been a little bit skeptical <laughs> about that. But I uh, just, I, I, it's not, I don't have, I said this on Twitter when it, when the kind of rumors knocked back. I think the idea of him being Casemiro's backup is hilarious because it suggests that you could put Blanco in, in the current system in Casemiro's position and not experience any sort of change like you've if you were to rate defensive midfielders at Real Madrid there is the Casemiro on one side and there's Blanco on the other and then there's everything in between they're just they are not in the slightest sense the same players there's not there's (laughs) not I I can't I truly cannot name one similarity I outside the fact that they both play in the same position yeah and And I don't think um... I I honestly don't think in the current system that you could put Blanco in in and he'd perform well. You're asking, you're asking for a sort of defensive performance that we've only seen consistently in the Ute League. But but I, I'm not so sure about that because Zidane seems to just put out the players he likes, not necessarily what you know. He doesn't even have a backup for all of these years. He never signed a similar backup to Casemiro. He just think, plays yeah. cross instead. I don't think there is a backup to Casemiro. So isn't it? Isn't it more like not a backup, but it's an alternative? I mean, yeah, I just, I just think it's funny. It's just, it's yeah. funny to me because there's <laughs> such kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. The the idea of <laughs> Zidane going from if I don't have Casemiro, I'm going to go completely the other direction and have Blanco as my other option. Yeah, but that's what he's been doing with Kroos, and you know, with yeah, you know, I don't it is, know. it is funny to me. It's um, weird, but but do you think uh, any of you do you think that Blanco will be a Real Madrid first-team player this season, like the rumours have been saying. <laughs> I think this is where we all differ, isn't it? Well, <laughs> Does someone think yes? Does someone think yes? I, no. I don't think yes, but I think there's a chance he could see minutes Involved. because yeah, no, I agree. We, we've I had agree. this discussion that there's mm. there's such a space between when uh, Castilla go back and when the you know, you know the first-team are already back. So I think it's inevitable yeah. that he might see minutes. Mm. Getting into the first team, I mean, it's kind of like Jovic. He has to displace one of Zidane's favourite players. I just can't mm. see that. Uh, at all. Um, I can't like, see it. So you don't think it's either, Sam? I mean, he needs to. we're looking at the squad number under 25 for him to, to do that, to viably yeah. be a first-team player. And I just, they're struggling to offload players. Yeah, that's true. Very good point. I just can't see that ever happening at all. Yeah, same with me. I think that's one of the main uh, issues. Just And then, if yeah. he, I mean, if he was... He wouldn't play every single game. We know no. this. So all of a sudden, you've got him doing pretty much what I imagine would be nothing for large periods yeah. of time. 
Um, yeah. I think Chris's solution would be idea where he plays, he gets the opportunities, but he he's Castilla's captain this year by all yeah. the look of it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. he's into a big plan. Having him in the senior team would actually would probably do more damage. Would yeah. probably do more damage yeah. than good because if he yeah. leaves, that's our midfield. Castilla's mm-hmm. midfield is a it's a bit of a flaming dumpster <laughs> because <laughs> his experience, we were building around his experience. Mm. And, and uh, we got to mention that we are recording this now on Friday evening. So if yeah. this spot is released <laughs> after the game, which is could be, then uh, maybe maybe he has played and maybe he has uh, made his debut. I don't Who think knows? he's in the squad. Oh, the squad is out, yeah. No, he's mm. not in the squad. That's true. That's true. So we'll say you, yeah, uh, you never know. You could anything could happen. When's because? Uh, in fact, let's not talk about Castilla's next game. Let's talk about Castilla's first game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they played. It's not just been the first team that have played recently. Castilla played preseason, and normally preseason for Castilla is a relentlessly boring time where everybody that isn't going to make the squad for some reason plays. I remember a couple of years, Raúl de Thomas was playing up front only a couple of seasons ago for Castilla for a couple of preseason games. It's just so Mitch and match. From everybody. What do you um, mean? The, the players who are better or worse? So, players? because, so obviously yesterday, when was the game actually? A couple of days ago now that the game was. Um, was Wednesday. When, on Wednesday, Wednesday's game, um, half of that squad will not play for Castilla this season. Yeah, there was so some weird they're, ones. They've been called up from Academy, yeah. And this happens every single summer. It's just a complete jumble of names from loanees coming back who need minutes. Uh, for some reason, the academy players get called up to, to you know, get a, a good look in. I don't know. Uh, and then obviously yeah. there's there's Castilla players and then players that are actually still going to be sold and go out on loan. And it's just kind of a mess. But then towards the end of preseason, it just cleans up and the squad looks a little bit more official, I would say. Yeah. This summer, um, go on. I was just going to say Pau Russo started and Pau Russo yeah. made his like under 17's debut in February mm, I thought it was I, I was like wow I didn't, this it's is a real mess surprise. every summer but the and difference yeah. this summer is there's what two games and that's it yeah, yeah. there isn't a preseason to go through so I don't really know I don't know I don't know what the logistics are what the schedule is going to be um but the game on Wednesday was quite mixed that's all we know I didn't actually watch it I know you two boys did how yeah. did you find it I, I well, we we have different opinions here, me and Chris, because I I liked it, and I even you know I was very enthusiastic about watching these players who mm-hmm. I haven't watched before, but I've heard Chris talk about them, so I'm I've always looked forward to seeing them more. But Chris, he has watched them so much that I think he is tired of them already. Yeah, they, <laughs> I think the um, kind of whole jumble of new players did lose its lose its um, attraction to me. I have seen a lot of the players. I like I, I saw Paul Russo uh, in February when he when he was kind of breaking out. I've seen I've seen Ramon obviously time and time again. All the, I've seen a lot of the players and mm. kind of to me it struck me as a game less of kind of all these new players and more so that there's a lot of new guys on the pitch that are not going to play together or haven't played together and are clearly showing that there was a, a, kind of a there was a lack of chemistry in that and it meant that. You know, once they scored one goal in the first half, it took them a long time to get the other two on the board. I unfortunately I stopped watching once they scored the other two goals because I had to go to work. Maybe, oh, that's okay. what another, maybe that was another reason why I didn't enjoy it as much because I was kind of rushing around doing other stuff while the game was on. But oh, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose the magic of it all was lost on me because I have seen a lot of these guys before. 
I always mm. actually find football boring if I don't really pay attention. Then it's just, you know, unless yeah, there's a ton yeah, of goals. That was probably the issue. <laughs> what and was the, the score again? I, I actually forgot the score. 3-0? Mm. Yeah, but mm. it was one. It, it had one nil written all over, or one one. And then <laughs> I came back, and I didn't even bother checking the score. I just presumed. And oh, someone yeah, yeah. posted highlights, and I saw three nil. I was like, "What? How did that happen?" Uh, <laughs> let's go through the lineup then, because <clears throat> I think it was quite a strong lineup. Mm. In the goal, I don't know much about this kid. If he, oh, Lucas Canaris, yeah, it? but he is the son of Santi Canisares. Yeah, he's mm. really good. Wow. He's good. Is he? Yeah, like... he's quite good. I like him. He was one of my favorite goalkeepers. He was Juvenile B's goalkeeper last okay. year. So under 18s or 17s or something like that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and Guillaume, who we know, right back, um, mm. he will he will be the starter at right yeah. back. This, no, for uh, sure. Unless uh, Santos, Santos is going yeah. to. Yeah. Paul Ramon and Gila, they will play a lot. They both nice. started. And uh, I like them both. Both good ball playing, uh, center backs, yeah. you know. Paolo Ramon was just, you know, doing dribbles and Gila too. I mean, they are taking risks, but they are good enough to, to do it. Mm. Um, Alcazar playing on the right, not the left. I didn't know who this guy was. Not a Juvenal B player from what but I remember. He was, of all of the players, I thought he was the most anonymous of, you know, the whole starting 11. I didn't really see much of him. But um, he played and uh, Murante, Sintes and Theo Sidan in midfield. Theo Zidane was the more advanced. <laughs> yeah, he, he scored, so he's going to start the Classico. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> keep an eye out, yeah. Watch out, watch out. And in front, we had Peter, Latassa, and Dotor. And Latassa went out after like uh, 20 minutes. So then came in well, the guy who we have talked about so much, Israel Salazar, came in mm. and played so many minutes. And I, uh, it pleasant surprise me that he got so much playing time, that he was even in the squad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I I liked what I saw, and I thought I I have some notes here. I, I'm not going to go through them all, but uh, where do we want to start here? Is it um, what do you think? Have you, have you got notes on individual players? I have. It's a little bit messy. Oh, I, I just noted that our centre back position again is really, 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 <laughs> really strong because yeah. Javier isn't having Hernandez still here. He's rumoured to go, but he is still here, yeah. That's just dumb that we have, like, Gia, <laughs> Mon, and Hernandez oh. as our three centre-backs. Mm. You'd, near, yeah. you'd, uh, you'd near start a tree at the back just because it's those three players are on the books. Strong players, yeah. No, that's crazy. Wrong. Yeah, that's I really cool. rumours about him leaving, but maybe he hasn't, no. I hope so. I, I like the idea of Gia and Ramon playing next season, and I think Hernandez deserves to move get a move away. Says here that he he's gone to Leganes for oh, five hundred thousand really euros. Good. Yeah, that's a really good move if he gets it. But uh, do you cheer? Do you cheer for them to leave? That's not good. <laughs> I don't know. It's time. Yeah, I kind of I don't know. I just I know not everyone's going to make it. So I kind of if they get a good move, even if it's permanent, like I I really I'm really pleased for them. I guess Real Madrid mm. is trying this, uh, <clears throat> like uh, classes and everything they're doing yeah. this season. But um, just, like, unless they become otherworldly, which yeah, the club spots early on. You know, if they want to bring them back, they're generally quite affordable. Yeah. I mean, how much is like what's the maximum price Javi Hernandez is going to cost you? Oh, a mil, a mil, surely one mil. Yeah, but I mean, like, presume let's presume well, coming back. Comes, yeah, coming back. Oh, becomes as good as he. You could times it by 10, but even that, it would be affordable. 10 mil? 
Yeah. Surely, yeah, nothing. And even then, you still have the connection to the club to kind of tug at the heartstrings with as well. It's mm. the same. I mean, you look at Regulon. That you know, even though he went to Spurs and kind of the the plan is always to come back. Well, if you believe the media, the plan is to come back. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I I think for the most part, if you want to bring these players back, it's it's doable. But I, from a financial perspective, I don't get why Real Madrid are selling Baeza and Javier Hernandez for <laughs> almost nothing. Because if you loan them out and they play well, then their their value skyrockets. No, mm, it's true. Mm. I guess with the buyback, maybe they are looking at just a developmental approach. Then maybe you think if they, if Bayesa does well at Celta Vigo, perhaps then they buy him yeah. back, loan him out from there. I don't know. Maybe they it's, are. We've had quite a mixed experience with loans in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. But I could understand if they if they got they a must, decent fee. But I'm, they, I'm they beginning to presume that they must be quite difficult to get right. I don't know what it is, but they so there's such a mix. I guess it's life, isn't it? I yeah, guess. and and as you say, like the fact they're selling these players over loaning them, there must be something about loans that are quite difficult to do. Mm. I'd love to speak to someone in this area. Yeah, I think Real Madrid. I think Real Madrid just need money, but but yeah. just five hundred thousand euros for Javier Hernandez. How much does that really? Help? Uh, they could. I can only imagine because his contract can't be that long in that case. Yeah, five hundred k is that's a bargain. That's a yeah. bargain. Yeah. It is. <laughs> he could be worth a lot more than that it's right good now. Both, and Leganes are likely to play him. So yeah, mm, good for both. For sure. mm. so, so he didn't play, but uh, yeah, Ramon and Gila. I think yeah, as we said, that's a good partnership. So Ramon, there. Ramon against the senior side. What is there any thoughts around that? Because I know that was our worry with his stature and the way he plays. Him. Yeah, I think I think that could be an issue against certain sides. What was he like but... in this game? I didn't think about. I guess he must That's have good, done all right. That's he must good, have done. Yeah. He must have done all right because I didn't think about it. Mm, so yeah, he wasn't. I didn't think he was really challenged. He had his game That's was fine. It must be. I said, did, but to be perfectly honest, the team that we played really did terrible. Didn't, they? Uh, were, were didn't really offer much. Yeah, because they barely got into the, to our uh, box at all. What division so. is this team? It's not a team okay. I've heard of. I heard about them, but I don't know where they are. But oh. what's there any, you know that. Um, kind of mythical world below the third division. I think they might be in there. <laughs> Four fees, like it. it um, whether whether they're actually there, you know, whether that actually exists or not, I'm not. I'm mm. not 100 certain. I'm very yeah. impressed by our midfield, and I I have high hopes for our midfield. Mm. Um, Sintes uh, was, uh, you know, he was he's doing uh, well, but not like uh, he wasn't crazy good. But Moranto mm. and Theo, I was surprised by Theo. He is. Very good technically, as we could expect, but he mm. is very tall and seems to be a, yeah, a physical player. Mm. And um, I thought, you know, he was getting a lot into the box, going, getting to chances. I liked what I saw. I think maybe this could be nice. A, yeah, that's um, the most I've seen him. Seen of him, he didn't play when he played under 19s. He was a bench player. Well, yeah, he was. Like you're the, right. The, I remember the most, the kind of most standout performance he had was when was against Getafe, which is the game Alex Clapham saw as well and spoke about, you know, because mm-hmm. plug a previous podcast, go and listen to that. But, yeah, and outside of that, I can't think of any significant appearances he made for Juvenile. So, yeah, well, that was the most I've seen him, and I got my echo Ruben sentiment. It was quite impressive. I didn't realise he was so tall either. Yeah. Could he be the best young Zidane? Could he? We, we still have one more to go. Oh, he's there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. He's, in, he's in the under-15s. There's so many. It's silly. Yeah. No, um, it's the last one. 
Did you well, see where Enzo went yesterday? I think it's official. No. I think he moved to a Moroccan team, I think. Yeah. Um, which is absolutely baffling. Well, oh, it's to, almost getting embarrassing. He went to Wydad Casablanca, didn't he? Who were they? They are a North African team. Are they good? They were <laughs> one of the better North African sides. I think John Toshak managed them once. How do you know this stuff? <laughs> uh, I don't. I have a. I don't. I think I wrote about John Toshak once, and it came up. Okay. They won like they won African Champions League or something like that. Oh, so they're not they're not terrible, but it is a weird move for him. It's a bizarre move, all right. And uh, obviously, Lucas Zidane is going to go the same way. Let's be unbelievably honest. <laughs> um, so it's all on Teo. And what's the other one called? Uh, I'm not even going to try. I don't. Oh, good. Interesting. So Teo impressed. I mean, what can he make of this preseason? But he surely won't make part of the Castilla squad. No. Well, well, the, the squad. I think he can play some games, but uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think he's the under 19s player. Yeah, uh, for sure. But uh, Dotor looks good. Whenever I see him, he played in the year for youth league as well. Uh, Morante. Oh, I think that's that's probably going to be one of our best players this season i think morante just he looks just class oh, you know, technically I and um i can see why we signed him and one of mm. the, the surprise for me in this game was this guy called peter yeah <laughs> i don't remember his last name but i hadn't even heard about this guy and i and then he started and he was great yeah. he was great he was like dr- super technical oh. fast he was hitting these uh, Passes, cutting passes with the outside it's of his great boot. hair as well. Great hair, and uh, yeah, I love it. He, he, I mean, I want to see more of this guy. He, this he is there's always good. one of these every summer. Whether it's Pablo Rodriguez, Marvin Park, there's always an academy player who comes up and looks unbelievable every yeah. summer. Peter yeah. this year, I remember that name. Yeah, Peter. I don't remember his last name, but that's what they call him at Real Madrid TV. Hmm. So yeah, um, because I think his last name is Federico, but. I think if, if some Real Madrid TV, Real Madrid have a habit of shortening names, and there's like a Peter and there's a Fer, and that's because one of they're both called Federico, okay. <laughs> so they've shortened their names oh. to different little uh, to different ones. I always confuse the two because they played they played in the same team. So I actually I see here that I have um, thirty seven uh, points in my notes, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve of them includes Peter. So mm. I was I liked him a lot. Wow. I, even yeah, I wrote here he is Peter is full of confidence. Tries to buy a ki- bicycle kick. Complete. Did he? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even hit the ball. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but he was so full of uh, confidence. He only played mm. sixty-four minutes. So um, no, he was. Uh, that's very promising. And if. Yeah, that's what we've got underneath Castilla. Then it's mm. very promising. He, nice. Um, he's only got two syllables in his name as well, which makes it much easier for Raúl to scream. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, we, oh, my, we always talk too much before the pod, so I never remember what we've said actually in the pod or what we. We said need before. to do those. We need to do a podcast where we just click record from the start. Yeah, yeah. We, should, we need and to. You, do you it. get to hear about Sam's like. Sam playing on an amateur team and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 but uh, we didn't. We haven't talked about Salazar yet, right? A little no. bit. Did we hear now? Because you said he played seventy minutes, which surprised me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. yeah. But that's so about he, it. He did very well, uh, and he he was 
a very he is of course a very different uh, profile to Latassa who went off. But Salazar came on and immediately created a lot of danger with his runs behind, mm-hmm. uh, um, and especially one situation where he just let the ball run past him and he shrugged off a defender with you know pace and strength mm-hmm. and almost found a, a player in the box and he was just a threat all along. And uh, this is guy he's sixteen, I think. No 17. way. He's just turned seventeen then. Okay, yeah. so and. Uh, Great talent we've got here. I think uh, he, he he did get one opportunity, one by one. Oh, if we find that clip, I would love to, to yeah, find it. Because that, uh, that was a really... Because he had to work hard to make that chance. Yeah, because there was this long ball over the top. Yeah. And he sprinted past the defender easily, but it was a long run. And he got into the box and he made a, a feint. And he almost got the... The shot with the with the left. Yeah, and the ball, didn't the ball end up behind him and he kind of scoop it into his part as well? Or maybe that was a different chance altogether. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he definitely. <laughs> I I was impressed as well. I, I it wasn't a game that he's been more active in games that I've seen him in. Mm. But in terms of when he was on the ball, there was some really impressive phase. It just plays with him and yeah. what he was doing was yeah. quite impressive. So yeah, it would be interesting to see where he goes. I think Very. he's. I think he's under 19s for sure because mm. uh, Gooder Johnson is injured. So mm. yeah. So, but just him being in the under 19s is uh, is good because we were kind of afraid that he would play for the under 18s or even 17s just yeah. next season as well. But it seems like he's taking a big step up, like we hope to. And um, yeah, looks good. I think. Um, the last player I want to now, just a couple of players more. We we signed Kenneth Soler. Mm. He <laughs> he did not have a good game. Um, what? He had a bad game. Yeah, I did mean he? he he. I mean he doesn't really. I mean it's just one game, but I'm I'm not sure. I always take it for granted when we sign someone for Castilla that th- these guys are just going to get straight into the eleven because there's no point of signing anyone if they're not going to be a starter. <laughs> but he does not... I mean, here, he, he lost the ball most every time, and he looked... What? Yeah, so... Terrible haircut. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to Peter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you don't have any notes, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, let's give him the um, yeah, benefit of the doubt. He will get more opportunities. Yeah. yeah. But um, and another player, who is it? I The guy who scored the third goal... I was actually about to write in my notes, number 14 looks really good. And then Aranda, who was number 14, scored at the near post. So he he oh, looked... Yeah. He, he had two chances, didn't he? Like he came yeah. on, the first first thing he did when he came on was just create a chance. Yeah. So Aranda, yeah. this is a guy who I will try to remember because I think he looked really promising, good on the ball and also very good physically and uh, showed that he could score a goal. Mm, and I, I think, yeah, I read a little bit about him later. It seems like he's a promising player. It just in general, I'm very excited about this group of players we've got now, the ones who are coming up. I think we have a great generation uh, ahead, and I will be surprised if, you know, we're already seeing uh, Arribas and Marvin yeah. debut, making their debuts, so yeah. that's uh, proof Oscar that... Aranda's mm, kind of next season, it could be next season's Arribas. Yeah, yeah. They, they're quite similar players and similar stature. I always, I think the, I think Aranda's bald, and that's the main way you can tell the <laughs> difference between the two of them. 
But yeah, uh, well, he's Aran, much stronger than Arribas. Yeah, though. and he he plays out wide, much further wide okay. than Arribas does. Um, okay. But in terms of how they approach the game and you know what they bring to the table, it's quite similar. So mm. yeah, yeah. ones keep an eye on for sure. Yeah. So this is all I've got. Uh, I also was impressed mm. by Guillaume. He made some good passes, but apart from mm. that, I think that's it from this game. Um, what's the next game for Castilla? They've only got two. Oh. That's putting everyone on the spot. <laughs> I think, uh, um, is it, do we have another friendly? Because what I'm oh, seeing Oh, there was is, one that was cancelled, so maybe you're right. Because here it's saying that, you know, the October 17th is uh, against Las Rosas away. Maybe you're right. And, uh, and it got cancelled because I remember they were going to play, I think it was via the lead B or something in a friendly. Um, yes, you're right. It did get cancelled. And yeah, Corona or something. I don't know. Um, so maybe, in fact, maybe we're done here. Could be. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was so glad that we finally had a game to to speak about because yeah. I mean I mean I know that we have we we haven't put out too many podcasts lately, but we haven't had a game to cover since March. I mean, mm. it's been brutal. <laughs> no Castilla games since March, mm. so I'm really looking forward to getting the games back on. To <laughs> you know, to... I'm um I think we should bring up the elephant in the room that nobody's thought about because Castilla we're not playing at home here. That's what I was just about to say. They were playing on the training grounds. They played in the Valdebebas. And whilst the first team play uh, at the Di Stefano, I think this may well be a setting that us guys and the players should get familiar with because they're just going to be pushed out here, aren't they, surely? Ah, I didn't even think about that. That's probably where they're going to be. Is that better or worse? I mean, I think they'll feel comfortable. It's not really much different, to be honest. When you're an academy kid, do you not just go to school, rock up on this pitch, and then murder Getafe's under 14s 8-0 and then go home they've all played if they've been in the academy they've all played there. yeah yeah um, I, I don't know I can only imagine it's a, quite a good thing and there's no and they fans train whatsoever. there you know mm. it's, it's it's home away from home really so I don't think it's going to be any issue and the pitch is just next to the Stefano as well yeah, so. yeah. right next to it yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't think that's going to be a problem I that's think, a good point yeah, yeah. It'd be, I suppose you'd have an issue if it was artificial but it's not mm, they're, no. they're all kind of Grass lovely. pitches. They are lovely. <laughs> Paul Bruce well, is well, taking care of everything. Yeah, I was about yeah. to say, shout out to Paul. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, we need to get him on, but anyway, moving <laughs> on. Moving on away from the game. Season starts next month. Coming mm. up for a couple of weeks now rather than a month, actually. It's coming in the, in the next few weeks. Um, still a lot to do, and the first team have this same problem of sorting out the squads. Nothing is finalised, but... Yes. Our last podcast, I don't know if we said this before or during the podcast, was I think about 20 days ago or something like that. That's a long, long time, especially yeah. uh, in a Castilla summer. And there have actually been a lot of transfers. I think the last transfer we spoke about was Renier to Dortmund. Mm. Um, since then, there's been a handful, at least five, I think, more transfers. Um, and I think we should just kind of finalize the podcast by going through all of them um, yeah. and saying what we think about it, really, because there have been some disappointing ones in my head already. Um, okay, yeah. But there's also a couple I like. Um, right after, I think on the day we recorded that podcast with Kian, Frank Garcia moved. Because yeah. he was left back. Um, this is the first one I was disappointed with. Uh, he moved to Rio Vallecano in the, in the second division. And he's already, I think he's already got a couple of assists. He's in the starting lineup. He's playing well. Um, but the the rumours all summer kind of linked him to Osasuna or somewhere mm, like that. Yes. Uh, he, he was going to be the next tweet that I hashtag another one for because Castilla have made another La Liga graduate yeah. go straight to the top. Um, and it just hasn't happened. And I don't really like that. I think this this was a sure starter in La Liga at a couple of clubs. And 
And I'm just not really happy with this kind of Vallecano move. But I don't know if and you kind a, of share a, that. It's a loan, right? It's a loan, yeah. So maybe that's why nobody wanted to to maybe yeah. it's just maybe it's just not just not good enough for someone willing to take him mm. for one year. Mm. I mean, maybe if they were able to sign him permanently, they would say, okay, we can oh, develop this guy. But if cool. just for one year, maybe that's what stopped it. But uh, I agree. I think he he's good enough to go straight into La Liga right now. I, I don't know what's you know the the quality of the left backs in La Liga. I have no idea. But he is just a solid left back, and he I, I refuse to believe that he couldn't have done a good job in La Liga. Definitely. What do you think, Chris? <laughs> I think everyone knows my line on this. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's like my favorite player. So yeah, yeah, obviously yeah. I I back him to the hills. Um, yeah. But like I said, I mean, second division isn't awful, and he's no. definitely going to impress at that level. So starting already. Uh, yeah, and then I, I I was listening to the loan tracker representing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so and they they w- watched his game. I'm not sure if they watched it or if, what exactly well, they did. Yeah. They kept a track of it anyways, more than we did. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he played well. So yeah, more of that. Hopefully, we'll see what happens. I don't know, like what what the long term plan is with Fran Garcia. He obviously wasn't a player that Real Madrid were too keen to get rid of because of the season he had. But I don't know if there's a space for him either. Mm. It's weird how I mean how little it takes for your value to increase just by an extreme amount. For example, Javier Hernandez, five hundred thousand euros. If he just had played one season in La Liga, he probably would have done well, and it, he would have been worth like five million or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So it's just about show get being able to show uh, what you're good for, and the same goes for Frank Garcia, I think. But okay, let's see how he does there and. Um, yeah. If people pay attention, I guess he will get more opportunities. He will go to the Liga, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, next two, I'm actually... I don't really have an opinion. I don't think, I'm not really disappointed, uh, and I'm not really excited for them. The first one is Adrian De La Puente. You actually had quite a poor season with Castilla last year, where yeah. he was supposed to step up and, and be one of the leaders of the team. Um, he moved to Villarreal, and he's most likely going to play for their B team, so I just don't, I don't know what to think about that. Horrible move for him, right? Do you think? I don't know. I guess going from right Real Madrid B team to Villarreal B team. But if the purpose of a B team is to try and get first team opportunities, perhaps it's a better switch for him because I could see him getting a few first team opportunities with Villarreal. With Real Madrid, I, obviously the door is shut. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it is a weird one. I guess he could definitely have moved to at least the second division club. Probably not higher, but I guess a B team is healthy. I think you're still on the books of a massive club. In quotation marks, yeah, massive. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and you do get those opportunities. Ooh. If you impress there, you're sorted. Did you find something, Chris? Our, our, our Villarreal listeners are not going to be happy with that. <laughs> 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 Regular Jonathan Barrett here. <laughs> Burnett. Yeah, sorry, guys. But, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's actually a good point that, you know, at least he is uh, under contract with uh, La Liga Club. So mm. he could get, you know, I'm, I guess he will get minutes in Copa del Rey and stuff. But what uh, a few players have made that move in the past. A, from he was a good Segunda B player when he played. He just yeah. did not play under Raul for whatever remember, reason. Did he score an own goal? What did he do? He headed it back towards... Uh, yeah, I, yeah he had a howler of a mistake. Yeah, that on. was he's... the worst game he's ever... But apart from that, he some of them were very good. And Raul of them never just... forgiven for it. Yeah, he I don't think he played player. again, you know? He was very, very good under Diaz. Uh, mm, Manuel yes. Diaz two years yes. ago. Yes, everyone um, was. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think if he plays... 
you know, definitely second division or something like that, and maybe the odd appearance for Villarreal is on the cards. But hundred mm, percent, yeah, the car, the door definitely shut at Real Madrid. He was a player that was, we were, I was happy, you know, we're happy to see offloaded. He wasn't really yeah. right to plans next season. Mm, 100%. We also also lost Sam's favorite. My favorite is uh today. Alma, Javier Bauman, and this had to happen by the way. Um. So I think he got released actually a couple a few days ago and then joined someone as a free. But they announced if you and Labrador are in the second division, announced it today. Javier Bauman will join them. So many ex Castilla players from the past few years are in that squad already, by the way. Um, but I don't know what to think. It's a second division club. If he starts, that's great. Um, I think that's a good move for him. If he doesn't, we'll see. I don't know what uh, to think about that. Three appearances for Castilla, which I suppose when you oh. think about it, 50 appearances for Castilla. Which, when you think about how long he's been here, that's not a lot. In goal, though, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Goalkeepers have it hard, I think. It three keepers difficult. normally at all times. Some of them are, have got Zidane as their surname. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's <laughs> it's he was, really hard. He was unlucky, as you say, with the competition. Maybe he wasn't always treated fairly. And mm. also just the injury. And um, did he, he didn't have more injuries as well. So, I mean, he yeah. he because now yes. he was in a position where... You know, Real Madrid were ready to promote other goalkeepers and give other goalkeepers a chance, and he didn't yet have he hadn't yet proven enough to get into La Liga, so he had to choose. I don't know about this Segunda club, but uh, it's in Segunda, right? Yeah, yeah second. It is. Yeah, yeah. So, small. they used to be Segunda B. They're really. They got promoted two years ago. Mm. I just wonder how easy it is to get you know to get people to notice you when you play for such a club. Well, I, I was going to ask this. I was going to say what would have happened if he left last summer. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, he he. I think his stock took a bit of a dip this mm, year. He didn't definitely. play as well as he did in previous years, definitely. and I suppose he has himself to blame for that because he he's known for a while that he wasn't there wasn't much of a career for him at Real Madrid. And I don't remember. A, I don't remember if I brought this point up the last time, but. I think one of the benefits of being on the, you know, part of Real Madrid is that, or any big club, is that Real Madrid have contacts. They will, you know, go tell this club, this club, you know, we have a player here. Well, that's what I'm saying. He had the opportunity to leave last summer and he didn't take it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now when he got, what is this club, Sam? Fuen Labrada? Fuen Labrada. Yeah, so I just think when you're going there, I mean, if Fuen Labrada sends you a mail, <laughs> I mean, it, I goes mean, the, it goes into the spam folder. Why are you taking shots at all these teams, boys? <laughs> it's in Madrid. Look, uh, with the next person we're going to talk about is there as well. He's so killed us. <laughs> all I will say is that I think Javier Bauman is if not the one of the best keepers for Castilla of the past decade and a little yeah, bit longer. Him, yeah. Massive. Um, and his shift at Castilla was excellent. He put in a really good shift. So it's sad how it ended. Um, but at least he's now progressing, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, if he does, I guess there's some kind of a team of the air in Segunda or something. I mean, if he, <laughs> if he comes there, maybe... Yeah, you never know. I, I mean, you and LeBron are tougher. And that's why... I mean, what do you think about France? You go in there then. <laughs> yeah, France is there as well. I mean, that must be—is that a loan? Uh, I think it was a loan. I think I don't actually know that one that much. But France, you another player who suffered, in fact, much more than Bauman with injuries. France, you missed most of his Castilla career for injury. For um, okay, so I will say this: I will say this for attackers, 
it's easier to get out of such a situation. I'm just speculating here. Maybe maybe all of these clubs, La Liga, have good connections. And you Do know, you know they were top ten in uh, yeah. the Segunda last year. They anyway, anyway, my point is that you know, for it's it's difficult for Frank Garcia and Bellman. They are not going to. It's more difficult yeah. for them to get enough points you know mm. but but for Franchu, if he just tears up the division and scores a lot of goals and assists <laughs> yeah. then that will be noticed so. it's, it's much easier for you to find attack like statistics that could tell you something about like yeah. the potential of an attacking player whereas with defensive players obviously there's a yes. system element to attackers but with defensive players it's much more system orientated yeah. exactly. and especially goalkeepers as well because yeah. like the goalkeeper is the last line of defense and you know there's there's just a whole host of factors that go into you know you know if he kept 16 clean sheets well is that him or is that the defense in front of him or mm. you know it it's it, it just it's really hard to analyze defenders and goalkeepers find solid statistics yeah. that can tell you exactly. whether they are very good players exactly and i suppose so once you go down and when you go down into the third division if it's rare in la liga then i don't I, like Who's keeping statistics apart from Sam? Who's keeping stats on Segunda <laughs> B? Well, um, do you like this move for him then, Franchi? What are we saying? Ah, well, he just he it's just as good uh, as you could have hoped for. He, how his, yeah, considering yeah. how injury prone he's been, it's as mm. nice an escape as he's gonna as he could have gotten. Yeah. It's he has to put if he wants to go higher, he has to put these injuries behind him. Yeah, but but I think he is good enough to to get to a higher yeah. level. Yeah, he just needs to stay healthy, just to get away from the injuries. And he is, uh, I like him a lot whenever he plays. I'd I think say, he... if, if in an alternate world where he wasn't so injury prone, yeah. he'd, play, he'd, be, he'd have been a player that Real Madrid would have been desperate to keep on yeah, the books. Yeah. Maybe that's why they, because I'm pretty sure they just send him alone. I hope we're right for yeah. that. But uh, maybe that's why they did it, because they know that, you know, if he stays healthy, then they have a good player on there. Kind of like, not as bad, but kind of like Sergio Diaz. Yeah, <laughs> he's still around, by the way. <laughs> um, Franchi at his best because it was unstoppable. Yeah, he's silly good. Um, Mark Tessi is on loan, so I guess that's right. Yeah, that's actually. Nice. I was just thinking, like, if for people who are listening to this podcast, Franchi is one of those players that you could definitely watch on YouTube highlights. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, he was one of those. He was one, yeah, he was one of those nice highlight players. <laughs> so, like. He was always, I think, well, I remember him for is just being able to cut in and mm, just yes, kind of rob finish, yeah, where yeah. hit it, curl in top corner, unbelievable. Mm. Yes. So many times, I mean, it, those sort of goals never lose their no, those no. boring like so, Sorry, weren't they? Yeah. Um, next we got Sergio Lopez. Um, I think Chris alluded to him getting <laughs> screamed at all year. Sergio, by Raul, not not too long ago. This move, again, is something I really don't have many thoughts on. He's moved to Real via the lead. I assume that he's going to start in the B team. But unlike De La Fuente, unlike every Castilla player, surely Sergio Lopez has got a very clear path into that first team. I can't see... I don't I don't want to take the mick out of even more teams, but I can't see that Real via the lead <laughs> got too many better players in front of him. Isn't, this is the last minute Sanchez played for. He is there now, yeah. Yeah, so I mean... Never count anything out. Like the last minutes, right? the the last minutes have just been us shitting on like <laughs> La Liga. Because <laughs> <laughs> they Villarreal when the Sorry to everyone who likes these. I don't know who they're right. There's no way Villarreal have any good players. 
<laughs> I mean, that's what we've just been saying. Oh, thank no, you. But, um, like this podcast, and he loves Final Rider. We could have scared him away now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, I don't know. It's Lopez. Yeah, yeah. Another player who maybe we're too. Maybe we are pl- have been praising them bit too much. Then I don't know. I mean, he's good. I can see him really. Um, getting some opportunities in that first team because I think that would be his level. I don't think we've overpraised him. I think his level would be when he is at his best a La Liga team like Vidalid. Um, yeah, and he'd be playing top level. I don't know. I haven't seen him at his best in <laughs> two years. <laughs> I mean, he did get outclassed by Guillem towards the end of last season. Yeah, and he got uh, outclassed really by Danny have... Fernandez the season before. Yeah, that. yeah. It has. There's a track record, and I it's think been, it's just yeah, I don't know. Mm. Maybe. It, it, it's this kind of last chance saloon, anyways. Yes, I don't yeah, know. I can't sure. see three seasons of what he's been of what he's been producing so far. Get, you know, his stock is like going to plummet if that happens. If it happens mm-hmm. again, well, I don't. I, I mean, I know, I know. You've just said that Valladolid is a shit team, but I mean, have he? <laughs> I sent didn't say three, that. I didn't say that. <laughs> we sent <laughs> we sent three players there last year, and none of them got minutes. Oh. Oh. So, like, why are you reminding me of last well, because, season? That I mean, <laughs> those three players that we sent were, actually, were decent, know, very, very highly decent. rated. Players. Yeah, really the, good. Players. The opposite of what Sergio Lopez has been for the and last two years. The only time one so, of them played is when they bought him. So you, so are, by, you make a good point. So by la- that logic, either, Lopez will play for a Valladolid C. <laughs> <laughs> on the bench. They'll make, they'll make that team for him. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. That's, that's yeah. It doesn't wow. sound good. Good luck. No, I don't think it's a terrible move. I just don't know what I think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, last one, actually. I can't think. I'm looking at the list. I don't think there's any more after this. This one surprised me a little bit. It didn't surprise Chris. We were talking about um, the striker situation last time. Someone has to make way. Um, and I didn't think it would be this guy. Chris, definitely, I remember him clearly saying, it's probably got to be. Um, I can't remember what Ruben said, but Rodrigo Rodriguez, the Brazilian, very highly rated prospect, has gone on loan. He's been... He's been shifted to um, Talavera in Segunda B, so he'll get a season surely starting in, in the third tier. Um, I don't like the move, but I guess Chris is right. I mean, someone had to make way. Because, yeah, it's too many. Mm, um, who's come in, for instance? Uh, Hugo Juro's come in. Kenneth Soler's an attacking player. Pablo Rodriguez is still floating around. No, There's just so many strikes. Pablo's uh, gone. Has he? Yeah, remember we had this conversation and no, that's a rumor. You can't. Is it? This oh yeah, now. he's not gone yet, but he's on. He looks like he's oh, on the way. Out. Don't make me swear. Oh, like that. I, <laughs> I hope he isn't. I hope, by the way, this um, stops that. I don't know. Um, okay, so I'm looking at the list now. Uh, Pablo is there. La Tassa, Hugo Duro, been promoted yet, and Pedro and uh, Vallejo. If he's a striker, as well, we don't know, so maybe even one more does have to shift. Maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. But Rodrigo, yeah. Just didn't make the cut in the end. I guess he was injured for the most part of two years now. Surely, yeah. I just think he has. He's one of the players with maybe the highest potential. But just mm. again, just he, he and Franchu are quite similar in that regard. Just high potential, quality talents, but uh, don't have the body to yeah mm-hmm. cope with the highest level. I guess, which is a shame. Yeah, it's a shame. But um, if you know playing Saguna B, it's yeah. just about. I get so what they're pretty much doing is just sending him to another club at the same level and hoping mm. that he will stay injury free yes. and letting the other club take the downside if he does not get help. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Do we want to say that they're terrible just to keep it going? Or... <laughs> <laughs> what is it again? 
<laughs> I don't know, actually. Are, are they... Calavera de la Reina, so I guess... Real Madrid Castilla used to play yeah. them all the time. I don't know where oh, they are. I can hear this clip being played when we were getting knocked out of the playoffs by them. Oh. Rodrigo scores a hat-trick, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> After Sergio Lopez has made 40 La Liga appearances or, or something, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, transfer's still not over. As we said, a striker's got to go. Um, really, someone should be coming in at some point, surely. Um, now I say that, I can't think of where. Obviously, um, we haven't really spoken about Hugo Vallejo much, who uh, actually may act as, as an incoming, um, as a winger. Um, I, I can't remember the name, but they're they're linked to another midfielder. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. You're a defensive midfielder, right? Mm, yeah. From a team saw I that, hate. Saw that name. He, but but uh, Real Madrid haven't spent a single euro this summer, I think. Wow. So, wow. will they do it for a Castilla player? <laughs> It'd be funny that, if they yeah. did, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Castilla have more expenditures than the first team for once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes. But mid-center midfield, I don't know. Maybe if we promote Blanco, but uh, I don't think... Pff, I think we have a lot of good options at central midfield already. So, let's see. But uh, if he's good, I mean, mm. maybe, maybe. I mean, we will find out. I mean, if he signs... By the next time we do a pod, that should happen. All mm. the incoming should be actually done by then, I imagine. A lot yeah. more outgoings would have been finalised, probably still some more on the way. Um, so transfer talk is by no means finished for not even the summer, in the winter now. First day of autumn or whatever, whatever you call it where you are. Fall, I'm wearing a jumper. America? Do we say fall in America? Yeah, they do. I think they do. But I thought that was August. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold now, so... Yeah. Got to be cold. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the latest. It's cold. Cool. I think um, the I think the listeners maybe would be interested in hearing our opinions on whether Blanco will be promoted or not. Yeah. Okay. I will gladly put mine out right now. No, he will not. Yeah. Chris, I'm, I'm following the same line. <laughs> I think the same. Uh, but I'm glad that there are reports that he's mm. been considered at least because. Uh, as we talked about before we started, there's just not enough room in the first team to, you know, they can just register 25 players. Mm. So he will not be registered almost 100%. Mm. But I guess, you know, maybe that's a chance he will get a few games, maybe That'd like five, six games uh, for the first team, which would How be... How many... Let's make a prediction right now before we start then. I like this. How many Castilla <laughs> players this season will play for the first team? Including uh, Marvin and... Uh, so we've got Arigat. two now, so our answer has to be at least two. Yeah, but it can be at most, however many. How I'm many going do you think? for a bold Ooh. four. Whoa, nice! I That's think... not really that bold, is it? Yeah. I will go bolder. I'm not afraid to. Uh, <laughs> or maybe uh, eleven. Blanco, All of them. Could... <laughs> uh, I'm including Copa del Rey. Uh, I think four is a good shout, actually. Yeah, I'm going to go five in that case because that just means three more. On top of these two, and I can see Blank. I can really see Blanco getting minutes. I can see. Miguel what about Gutierrez. Hugo Juro? Surely Miguel Gutierrez. Miguel Gutierrez. Miguel Gutierrez. Yeah. I can see it being five. I can. A goalkeeper perhaps getting a, a start. Diego uh, Ajube. I suppose Diego Ajube doesn't kind of count because of his position as a first team Maybe shadow Fabio goalkeeper. Well, Javier Hernandez is gone. Oh well, yeah. yeah I, I think four, four is probably a solid number for right, me. You two go opinion. four. I'm going to go five. I'm going to write that down and we will bring that up one day. <laughs> Let's hope you win. Let's hope you win. That'll be fantastic if I yeah. do. Um, I reckon it'll be nine. It'll probably be neither of them there in real life, surely. It'll be like nine or two. Yeah. What we, what we have to remember is that 
even if only Marvin and Sergio Rebas have made their debut, yeah. we've, we've still won. Progress. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <definitely. laughs> For sure. <laughs> what do you think, um, very quick, what do you think about uh, Regulon to, to Spurs? I like it. I would yeah. have preferred Man United. I would have much preferred Man United. Why? Um, just because I like the fact that you can go all around the globe, the biggest clubs, the weirdest football leagues, and there will be a Castilla graduate knocking <laughs> around somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like that idea. And Spurs, I'm not, again, we are having a lot of clubs off today. I'm not saying they're a small club. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the idea of uh, having a starter for Manchester United a lot more. You should become a football agent. I think I would um, rustle some feathers with what? Yeah, definitely. I would love to become a football agent. Real Valladolid, I've never heard of them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more wages of all we're going to another club we haven't heard of. The new Rayola. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Regulon, I, and you know, just what do you think about selling him then at all? Oh, I don't we know. I don't know what the club are really doing. So we have a buyback, don't we? Yeah, we do. I think we have a buyback clause. Yeah, I think it's right. weird. I think it's weird in the sense that like they gave Lucas Vasquez the choice to stay, <laughs> which I thought was strange. But I suppose it's just a reflection to players that Zidane trust than their players that Zidane doesn't trust. He was, and the club, uh, like, the club were like, there's no point in putting him out on loan because he, at the moment, he doesn't have a future, so let's sell him and keep our, you know, keep the buyback clause so we have our cards on the table if Zidane doesn't work out. He was reportedly getting an offer from Qatar, so which he refused. Yes. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But w- when it comes to Regulon, I just, yeah. Uh, I just don't think Ramdred will ever get him back because I think uh, for Tottenham to agree to such a deal, I, I guess know. the I Viber class, the Viber class must be at least forty, maybe forty-five yeah, million. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It depends on how the market goes after Corona. Yeah, but like, yeah. I could see, I can see Regulon doing well and at Spurs, and I can mm. see in four or five years' time them doing what they did to Morata, like buying him back with the just the idea of bouncing him. Didn't they do that before they sold? When, before they bought Morata back properly, they, or was it Morata at all? But buying him back and then just bouncing him for a, a bigger price. Yes, it was Morata, I'm sure of it. It was, so, you know, I'm sure it was. And yeah. Morata has gone back to Juve, which I also wanted to mention briefly. Just like uh, an, another move for him. I mean, uh, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on there? I don't know, but I like it. I like It's a massive, massive club and it's a Castilla graduate. I, he is hated here, though, so we won't talk too much about him. Oh, I just think it's so sad. Just mm. that he, he ended up going to Atletico, and he's mm. just he's become this I don't, thing. I don't yeah. really like Juventus either, so he's not really playing for teams. That, <laughs> he hasn't he hasn't got a track record of playing for teams I like. Brilliant. He yeah. just he just ruined so much for me when he said that you know playing for Atletico that was uh, the it's real dream, dream or something. Mm. Yeah, and he's I saying it's say the same to yeah. There's a um in Ireland we have our best player ever was Robbie Keane. And nice. Robbie, Robbie bounced around. He went to Italy, he played in England, he played in all these teams. Robbie and Keane every, went to Italy? Robbie Keane. Yeah, he played for Inter Milan. Huh? Uh, and, <laughs> you know, the joke about, you know, you get you have people kind of do impersonations of him. And the impersonation of Robbie is that he, you know, he'd be, you know, he's signed for a new club. And he's like, oh, I've always dreamed of playing for such and such a <laughs> team. You know, uh, okay. so I did see one of the Irish journalists pointing out that uh, Alvaro Morata is turning into the Spanish Robbie Keane. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. I see now, actually, he played for Inter Milan in 2000, 2001. But he yeah. was sent to Leeds United on loan just a halfway through the season, yeah. I think. So. He didn't have a good year in 
and enter. Okay. Robbie Keane getting a mention on the Castilla corner. I think that's... Well, uh, I mean... Get him on, yeah. Castilla corner. Get him on. I was about to say... <laughs> no, <I take> it. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. Right, we're babbling. That's it. We're doing it. We're cutting it right now. I agree. Um, There's still more we could talk about, you know. So much more. We could go yeah. into anything. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just... We'll double it. We'll do another one very, very soon. It won't be 20 days. Let me oh, promise oh, you that, God. listeners. It will not be. Um, yeah, another another really good one. A lot of fun. Covered all the really important topics. Still some to go and a lot more news in coming for the, the next week or so. So thanks very much for listening, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you missed us. We missed you. And we'll see you very soon. Ala Madrid. Ala Madrid.